Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we will be talking about drug and alcohol use in our high schools, not necessarily in the physical building, but use of drugs and alcohol by the students, high school age, in fact, high school age, and earlier than that as well. How big a problem is it? What can be done? And a little bit more detail on our topic. We'll talk about the halachic aspects. Is it wrong? Is it usher to be using drugs? alcohol, vaping, smoking, and the like. Can one tell on a classmate who is using, for example, can you tell the teacher, the Rebbe, the principal, the parents of the person who is using drugs or alcohol? What are the trends of drug and alcohol use we have in our high schools and earlier than the high schools? And how are teenagers able to afford and access the drugs, the alcohols, and the like? And are we better or worse than secular society? Also, we'll talk about solutions because that's obviously critical for our topic, solutions, what can be done by parents and what can be done by the schools. We have a number of experts in these areas with different uh, experiences and uh, different expertises. And we're going to start out with Dr. Rivka Schwartz. She is a professional educator, a popular lecturer. She ran a study a few years back of yeshiva's use of drugs and alcohol. It will be redone in the next few months. We will be talking about the results of the studies that she ran, she was involved with. We will then speak with Mrs. Leanne Foreman. She is a former corporate attorney, successful corporate attorney. You saw a real need in assisting in these areas, educating the students in the yeshiva schools and working not only with the students, but with the parents, the administrators, teachers as well. So she and her husband founded an institution, an organization called CCSA. She's the founder and the executive director. Then we will speak with Rabbi David Goldwasser, the Rav of Kahal Beis Yitzchak. He's a noted author and speaker. He has written on our subject, alcohol, drug abuse, and addictions. And then we will speak with Rabbi Daniel Feldman. He is a Rosh Yeshiva at Reitz. He's also the author of False Facts and True Rumors. And we'll talk about various halachic aspects of our topic. And then we will have a young lady. We're going to refer to her as Sarah a recent high school graduate to talk about her experiences and more of the experiences of her friends in use of alcohol. Where did the alcohol come from? When did it start? And how did the issues progress? And then we will culminate the show with Dr. Debbie Ackerman, a professor of social welfare, a clinical social worker, to talk about her experiences, one of her expertises, maybe her primary expertise is addictions, drugs, alcohol, and the like, and dealing with individuals across the orthodox spectrum, and uh, we will hear her insights as well. Before we go to our guests, uh, quick Tvar Torah on Parsha. Parsha's Miketz, we have the recounting of Paro's dream. So Paro had two dreams, and the first one is when there were healthy cows, and then there were another set of unhealthy cows, so seven healthy cows, seven unhealthy cows, six sickly cows, and we're going to look at the Psukim as follows. So first there were the seven healthy cows, and then there were the seven sickly cows, and we're going to look at three verbs that emerged from the psukim. First, the seven sickly cows came up, they emerged. Sheva, paros, olos, and olos, they simply emerged. And next it says, then they stood by the healthy cows, so they first emerged, then they stood by them, and then thereafter the sickly cows, Vatacholna Aparos, they actually ate, they devoured the healthy cows. So that was, they emerged, 
they stood there and then they devoured them. And I saw in the name of the Svas Emes as follows that here we have a remez to what Chazal tell us how the Yetzahara attracts an individual or attracts or attacks an individual. And it goes in three stages as follows. First, it's simply passing through. Doesn't even act as a visitor. A quick visit, maybe, but simply a passerby. That's the first attempt of at the Yetzirah. And number two, it acts as a guest. Stopping over for a bit, making himself more comfortable. And stage number three is that that Yetzirah goes from being a guest to being the actual Balabais in control of everything. So we have three stages there. Simply passing through, a guest, staying over, and then becoming the owner, becoming the Balabais. And in fact, says the Svasamis, this is represented by the seven sickly cows. They represent the Koach of the Yetzirah, that initially they simply emerged. A little bit, showing their faces emerging, not getting too comterable. That's how it starts. And thereafterward, they stood. They were a guest. They were hanging out a little bit more. And then thereafter, stage number three, Vatachona, they devoured the individual. They were fully in control of everything. They were the Balabais. They were, that was their home at that point. And in fact, as we will talk about on this show, that seems to be the trajectory of use of alcohol, drugs, and other vices. It starts slow. I'm just going to make a little bit of an attempt. I'm just going to dabble in this a little bit. And then it becomes more. And then the drugs, the alcohol, the vice becomes the Balabais is in control of everything. And just a quick reference from a Mishnah why this is even more problematic in the younger years, also the older years, but the younger years in particular. It's a Mishnah in Sota that talks about when a husband is concerned that his wife was uh, not loyal to him. And it says when she comes up to the Beistin Agado, she comes up to the Sanhedrin, so they try to convince her to confess to her sin. And first they try to frighten her, and thereafter they try to persuade her. They try to persuade her her in other ways to confess her sin. And they say to her as follows, As follows, I read it in the English, My daughter, wine causes much indecency. Then they're saying here that there were external factors that caused you potentially to sin and please confess. So number one was wine. Number two was playfulness. Number three is childishness. Being young and childish, immature. And number four was Shchenim Harayim, literally bad neighbors. I once heard from one of my Rabbanim, he said that this doesn't necessarily have to be a bad neighbor, an evil person. It could simply be somebody that is an evil friend to me. Meaning what? Maybe they are fundamentally a good person, a good neighbor, a good friend, but to me they're not good. They're not going to have a good influence on me and accordingly that would be Shchenim Harayim. And indeed we do see this not only for the younger, but some of these aspects is more for younger individuals when we have the immaturity, when we have the schok and the yaldus in particular, and maybe they are more prone to being influenced by others. So this is a year, this is an age, high school ages and younger and older as well, that we are talking about that indeed individuals are impressionable. And even if you grow up in the greatest of homes, but if the influences are there, uh, that could indeed start the use. And as we said before, it could start slow. It does start slow. And then the use becomes a guest. And then the use becomes the balabais, becomes the 
owner. So uh, those are a number of things indeed that we have to consider. Uh, just last night I went to uh, a base Avil and saw a close relative of mine and he was telling me that he was once involved as a, a rabbinic uh, advisor to a rehab center and he was talking about in that specific rehab center 95% of those who were in rehab were yeshiva graduates or had gone through the yeshiva program and now they wound up in rehab for different reasons causing their use. And uh, he asked one in particular who was from a very prestigious, well-known family. And uh, he asked, so what, what started your use of the substances, drugs or alcohol or both oftentimes? And the individual responded that he was in yeshiva and was under a lot of pressure because the pressure is to be number one, to be the guttle ador, to be a great rub. And he knew he would never be number one and he needed a release. He needed an escape and he started using and that's caused the problem. So it can come from many things. It can come from the influence of bad neighbors, bad friends, immaturity, social pressure, or the pressure in yeshiva it could come from any direction. And we'll talk about how bad is it, and we'll talk about how do we deal with the issues. Now, I do want to add on an important point. What is really confounding the issue that is making things dramatically worse is the societal acceptance of the use of alcohol and marijuana. It's just become normalized, the norm, and not only the norm, not only acceptable, but it's become a mitzvah as well. And I have in front of me a number of advertisements. Somebody knew that I was working on this topic and sent me ads, not only one person. In fact, a number of people sent me advertisements. And I'm looking, one is from, more than one, is from a uh, family-friendly magazine in the From community. It has a very high distribution rate. Uh, it's read throughout Israel, and they have an ad there by a uh, very well well-esteemed kosher food company, and they're selling sorbet that is alcohol-infused. It's infused with vodka. Very nice packaging, family-friendly, and it is infused with alcohol. Another example of this is uh, ices that are sold infused with alcohol. Somebody sent me a, uh, a Hanukkah event that it was a Dunkin' Donuts women's pre-Hanukkah event, and there was a Rebetzin speaking, and they were having sushi, drinks, lakas, and the like. And in addition... The event was booze-infused donut-making. Booze-infused donut-making. Yasha Koch. That just doesn't fit on this advertisement. It'd be beautiful to have a... Hanukkah event, to have the sushi and drinks, but once you get to booze-infused donut-making, it just doesn't fit. It is below us, something like that. It's painful to see something like that. So between the sorbet that has alcohol infused in it, and we have the uh, the Dunkin' Donuts women's event with uh, booze-infused donut-making, then we have candies that are being sold that uh, have THC, which is uh, effectively marijuana in it, these edibles that we have, that uh, people are having on Shabbos and Kiddishes, and we have uh, a famous uh, wine distributor, wine manufacturer that is uh, starting to package its uh, its wine in Coca-Cola cans making it very child-friendly even though we would never sell it to somebody who is below age, but we're packaging these candies quote-unquote candies laced with THC, and we're selling this food that is infused with alcohol, making it very friendly to families, and we're going to be serving this sorbet on Shabbos and are the parents really going to say, kids, sorry this is alcohol in it, it has vodka, it's not for you. And even if they do say that, 
Hopefully they do say that. But what's the message to the kids? The message to the kids is this is attractive. This is fun. This is acceptable. This is harmless. And even more so when we have it at a kiddish. We're imbuing it with kedusha. It's a mitzvah to have these foods, these drinks, this sorbet. All of this, is a, we're making makadish the alcohol. It's on a high level. And what are the kids going to want? What's the message to them? Obviously, they're going to want it as well. Just a connection to Hanukkah. I was having a conversation with Dr. Debbie Ackerman, who is one of the guests on the show today. I said, we're uh, on for Hanukkah. We need a connection to Hanukkah. And she said beautifully, that's simple, a simple connection to Hanukkah. The nais, Pach Hashemin, that represents hope. Everything looked terrible. They had no hope of being able to relight the menorah. And then they found that one flask that was pure, and they were able to use it. And that represents optimism and hope and we can say that on a more global level that despite the fact that things may be difficult with drug and alcohol use in general in the schools we have people making attempts as we'll talk with Mrs. Leanne Foreman today to educate in the in the schools and to educate in the yeshivas and also on a more individual level that unfortunately some people do slip into this they are using sometimes it becomes an addiction and we should look to that nes pacha shemen to represent hope that with proper efforts we should be able to return these people to health and be able to come back to society as a whole as healthy contributors to Klal Yisrael. Uh, Before we go to our guests, we'll quickly go through our riddle of the week. Okay, this week's riddle, Kansar Parshas Mikes, we have the brothers coming down to Mitzrayim, coming down to Egypt to buy food, to attempt to buy food, and they did not know that they were buying it from the Viceroy. They knew they were buying it from the Viceroy of Egypt, didn't know that that was their brother Yosef. And it says in the Psukim, we're actually in Perak Mem Gimel, Pasuk Lamadalit, Vayishtu, that they drank and they got drunk together. Rashi makes the following comment, Miyom Shemachruhu, Lo Shasu from the day that they had sold him, they had not drunk wine, and that day they drunk wine. And the question is as follows, if they had not found Yosef yet, they have stopped drinking wine because he was sold and they didn't have him anymore. Apparently they're waiting till they find him. So why did they start drinking now? They did not know that they were with Yosef. They thought he was the viceroy of Egypt not being Yosef. So why did they indeed start drinking wine at that point? If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now, let's go to our guests.
Joining us now is Dr. Rifka Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is the Associate Principal, General Studies Principal of SAR High School in the Bronx. She has a PhD in History of Science from Princeton University, and it is a pleasure to have you, Dr. Schwartz, on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Schwartz, we are talking about drugs, alcohol. We'll group them together unless you want to divide up between the two in high schools, yeshiva high schools, from high schools. And as a basic question, how big a problem is it nowadays with drugs and alcohol? We'll focus on modern Orthodox high schools. Do you have any empirical data that we can uh, leverage for our conversation? I'm so happy you asked me that question because the answer is yes. I have lots of empirical data. I work in SAR, which is a modern Orthodox co-ed high school in the Bronx. And for a long time, we were concerned not about what you might call the substance abuse problem, the few kids who end up being really serious problem users, but what we call the substance use problem meaning what passes for normal among high school kids, kids who on Friday night or on Matzah Shabbos at a gathering or on Purim or Simchas Torah or in whatever other context are drinking to excess, maybe are using other substances, but it's not the kids who are identified as problem users. Uh, it's just what passes for normal nowadays. And so we thought about what to do about it. And we thought and we talked and we consulted with people from other schools. And at some point we came to realize that we don't know what we're talking about here. We don't know what the scope of the problem is. You have an opinion. I have an opinion. Every the person walking down the street has an opinion, but we don't have any information. And so over a long period of time and working together with outside, outside researchers and outside experts who really could share what they knew from decades of research in this area, SAR High School, specifically Machon Siach at SAR High School, which is the research arm of my high school. I'm very fortunate to work in a high school that actually has an arm dedicated to that, organized the biggest study ever done of substance use among modern Orthodox adolescents. In 2019 and 2020, we did surveying. Between the two years, we did 20 schools. There was about 17 schools the first year. Some schools joined us the second year, but we surveyed 10th graders and 12th graders in 20 different modern Orthodox high schools with a survey that's basically the same one that the federal government uses every single year since the 1970s to gather data about substance use among American teenagers. And that meant two things. It meant, first of all, we have data about our own community. And second of all, we have an American baseline of data that we can compare ourselves to. So that's really so you'll be able to compare how good or bad we are versus secular society. Yes, we can. And that data was really meaningful. And we can talk about all the things that we chose to do with it. And also because it's both a few years old now and the pandemic in between has changed a lot of things. We are planning to survey again in February of this coming year, February of 2023, to gather updated data. And we're in the middle of getting that underway as well. I'd love to hear the results, but before that, I'd love to hear about the methodology. Typically, when you ask people, uh, did you do something terrible, they'll lie. So I, I assume first that the responses were anonymous, so the students would feel more comfortable responding honestly. And so not only... That, that, that's one point. And, 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 and the other point would be still, even with the numbers that you achieve, that's going to be the minimum, meaning even, even if it's anonymous, no one's going to lie and say we're using drugs when we don't use drugs. But the reverse would, would, would be the case when they're using drugs, they would say we're not using drugs. So wa walk us through and uh, let us know what the data saw. Great. So this is the advantage of uh, this is not us making up a survey on Google Forms and handing it out. We hired a survey and research firm called Bach Harrison, and they gave us a version of the survey, again, that the federal government has used every year since 1975, I believe. Um, the federal government survey is called Monitoring the Future. For those of you who might be online and want to look it up online, you can see data every year going back to the mid-70s. The version of the survey that we use is called the Prevention Needs Assessment. So again, this is an instrument that's been developed, that's been administered 
hundreds of thousands, probably millions of times over decades. That's been validated by researchers. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there are all kinds of measures in the survey itself to make sure that the data are valid. So for starters, of course, the survey is anonymous. For seconds, we made the choice to have our kids do it on paper rather than to do it on computers, even though that meant getting thousands of papers into the hands of kids, getting thousands of papers mailed back to Utah for data analysis. Because if you tell kids today, the online survey is anonymous, they still think you're tracking them. And if you fill out a piece of paper with bubbles and then you give it back to me without your name on it, you know that I don't know who filled out those bubbles. Um, and there are questions on the survey that are meant to get at false answers. So there are, first of all, the straight up questions. How honest were you in filling out the survey? If the kid says not very, the survey gets chopped. There are some questions on the survey that ask the same question a few different times in different ways. And if a student gives inconsistent or incompatible answers, the survey gets chopped. And the one that my own children found the most amusing was their favorite uh, verification measure, the survey gives you a whole long list of drugs. Did you use this and did you use that and did you use that and did you use that? And they always make up a fake drug and they give you a fake scientific name and then they give you a fake street name. And any kid who says they use the fake drugs, boom, the survey gets thrown out because then clearly just for a joke, they're going down saying yes, 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 yes to everything. And they aren't actually answering. Now, are these measures perfect? I'm sure they're not perfect, but it's important to say these are exactly the same measures that the national government uses every year to gather its data. When you hear teenage drinking is up or drug use is down or whatever other data you hear, we're using the same instrument and analyzed in the same way. So as reliable and valid as those data are, that's how reliable and valid our data are. That is fascinating and sounds like as sound a methodology as you're going to get. So walk us through the numbers. What's the drug and alcohol penetration if you have those separately and types of drugs and how do we unfortunately compare to society? And I will tell you, remember a, a comment once by Professor Dr. Abraham Tversky Zatzal the Gaon, and he was once talking about abuse or divorce. I don't remember exactly. And he was saying that, uh, you know, people say that we're at 10% and we're so much better than secular society. It doesn't matter. We're still terrible. So any use is terrible. Any use is terrible. And certainly if we come even close to secular society, that's all the more terrible. But any use that we have in our schools, obviously, is a terrible thing. So walk us through. Love to hear the, the results. Okay, so let's start with the good news. The survey asked about all kinds of hard drugs. Our use, while not zero, is exceptionally low. The survey asked about all kinds of other antisocial behavior, criminal activity, all kinds of things. As you would imagine, our prevalence of those kinds of behaviors is very low. In fact, I was just last Shabbos, I was visiting a college campus and speaking to a group of alumni, and they were reminiscing about filling out the survey. And they said, oh, yeah, we were joking afterwards about all the questions that asked us if we were in gangs or involved in gang activity. Right. I didn't really expect to see that. The question also asked about kids' emotional and mental health and well-being, connection to family, connection to religion and religiosity, maybe unsurprisingly, but still good to see. Our kids' levels of self-report religiosity were incredibly high, vastly higher than the national average. Kids' level of connection to family self-reported was high. Again, we'd, we'd like to think those things are true. But it's still good to know that when we gather data with a validated survey instrument, that that's in fact borne out. Our kids, and this surprised us, we were not expecting this actually, our kids both rates of vaping and rates of marijuana use were significantly lower than the national average in 2019 and 2020. When we went into the survey, we went into the survey thinking that the problem that we were looking for actually was a marijuana problem. That's what we expected we were going into the survey to find. That was our hypothesis. And our hypothesis was proven wrong by the data, which told us that our kids' rates, again, you can tell me that lower than the national average isn't, you know, a great click. That might be. But our kids' use of marijuana was meaningfully lower than the national average. And then what the survey told us is that our kids' rates of drinking are higher than the national average. And our kids' rates of binge drinking, which means five or more drinks in a sitting, are substantially higher than the national average. And that is hard to take in. And that's a lot to sit with that kids in our 
system are more likely to be binge drinking than your average American kid out there in the country. And, and, and what are the percentages? Are we talking about a 2% problem of, of students, a 10%, 20%? So it's different with uh, seniors and sophomores, right? We surveyed 10th and 12th graders. With sophomores, it's closer to that 10, 11% kind of number. And with seniors, it's meaningfully higher than that. And certainly the, the older they get and the more we get into the prevalence of drinking in our community, uh, the more they diverge from the national average. Okay, so we're seeing then that the trajectory is not good. It, it, I would assume that it goes freshman, that's ninth grade, Kita test uh, is the lowest, and then it increases over high school. So how, how does the problem begin? Does it typically begin in high school? Do we have data on that? Do we have information on that? And and how does the problem spread? Is it something that's in the school? Is it out of the school? Is it uh, is somebody just has a desire to open up a bottle of wine or liquor in the home, or is it at parties in school or when Bahrain get together? What, what, what begins the problem? Great. So that's a lot of different questions. And here's one thing I'll say. One of the protective factors we saw in our community, meaning one of the things that we saw marking that our community was in better shape than the country as a whole, was relatively later onset of first use, meaning relatively later age when kids started drinking. But because we only started surveying in 10th grade, we don't exactly know. That was based on self-report by the kids. When did you first drink? The the federal government does surveying of 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. And actually, often now they will survey 6th, 8th, 10th, and 12th graders to try to pinpoint exactly when kids are starting to use. There was a point where we wanted to give the survey to 8th graders exactly to get the answer to the question you raised. When is that starting? And here's the challenge. The survey asks a lot of questions. It goes into a lot of detail, as I made clear, about a lot of problematic behavior, about a lot of substances. And even in our modern Orthodox community, where schools were willing to give this survey in 10th and 12th grade, I know a researcher approached some yeshiva schools, some yeshivish schools, yeshivas and Besiakos to ask them if they would do this survey. And they took one look at the survey. And they said, are you joking? We are not asking our kids to fill in bubbles about whether or how often they use heroin or they used LSD. We're just not doing that. Um, in our schools, we were willing to have 10th and 12th graders do that. But when we thought about giving that to eighth graders, when we approached some middle schools about giving that to eighth graders, they felt like that was a lot. So I don't know if we'll get to the point as a community where we're ready to give that survey to eighth graders. But so the exact question of onset of first use, I don't have data about. I do know that self-reportedly, it is somewhat later in our community than it is in the broader world. And in terms of where they get it from, without spending too much time on the data, we also ask, where did you get alcohol? At home from your parents, at home from another adult who's not your parents, at home from someone who wasn't an adult in someone else's home at a party. Here is the reality about our community. Our community is wonderful and great and amazing in many, many ways. Being part of the from community gives you a tremendous amount. I, I don't think I have to belabor that point so that people, you know, to prevent people from thinking that I'm hating on the from community. But our community consumes a lot of alcohol and gives access to a lot of alcohol and models a lot of alcohol use. So when a kid sees that my father enjoys a lot of Kiddush and Shul and Shabbos with his buddies, and by the time he comes home from Shul, he's already, as the old American expression had, three sheets to the wind. Or my parents sit at a Shabbos table with their friends, and they go through one bottle of wine, and then a second bottle of wine, and then a third bottle of wine. Or Friday night at the Tish, part of that experience is consuming however much alcohol, or my parents go out for drinks with their friends. And again, in different parts of the community, you asked about use and when it happens, 
The answer is that in different parts of the community, it's different. In some parts of the community, it's much more connected to frumkite. It's the tish and it's the kiddish. Again, I don't mean that that frumkite mandates this kind of drinking, right? We could have that that other conversation, but it is in from context. In other parts of the community, it's in social context. It's in it's in parties, it's in gatherings, it's in going out together. But either way, our kids are seeing a lot of alcohol being consumed. There's often a lot of alcohol available in homes. And the combination of that modeling and that availability uh, contributes significantly to the problem and to the issue. I think some of us might still be carrying around in our heads this stereotype from Eastern Europe that, you know, non-Jews drink and get drunk and Jews don't drink and get drunk. I'm sorry to tell you the data do not bear this out in our community. Again, I have data about the modern Orthodox community, but I know that people who work on this issue in the yeshivish community think there's plenty of a problem there as well. Um, and so again, for some kids, it'll manifest in a context of this is what it means to be part of a certain kind of frumkite. For other kids, it's got nothing to do with that. And it's, I'm stressed and I'm tense and I'm worrying about my grades and I'm worrying about college and I can go to a party with friends and blow off steam. Um, but either way, there's modeling and there's availability um, within our homes and within our community. It's not happening in school. It's not happening in school. This is not about kids drinking in school during the school day. That's not where it's happening. But we didn't feel responsibly as a school that we could say, well, from eight in the morning until whatever at night, you're our problem. And what happens on Friday night or on Matzah Shabbos or on Sunday night is not our business and not our problem for a lot of reasons. It was shaping a kind of culture that was coming back into the school. It's about the health and well-being of our kids. And at a certain point, it's about their accessibility to what we're trying to give over to them and teach them. I don't really believe that you can grow as a person and you can learn and you can become when you're when you're spending your weekends drunk. I don't, I don't really think that that's so it does affect what we are trying to do with them in the building. And and we did eventually launch this fairly significant undertaking to attempt so just, to address it. You, yeah. So just just to go back for a second, what you're saying is a strong determinant of alcohol use is parent modeling, availability, and the general environment. Those three factors, and there's over a lot of overlap of those of those factors. It, it happens to be that there's also uh, nowadays use of marijuana by parents, and this is becoming more and more, um, I, I don't know if the word is acceptable, should it, because it shouldn't be acceptable, but more and more common, and, and other types of drugs, unfortunately, as well. So you said that there's not a huge amount of marijuana use. How about other drugs? Are you saying that drug use is not so significant or is it just, just marijuana? And, and why do you see that distinction between alcohol and drug use? So there's a few things to say about that. First of all, yes. Again, as of our 2020 data, and I want to be very careful and talk about what I know and not make up what I don't know. We were making up for a long time. We will be surveying Mir Hashem again in February of 2023. The advantage of February, if you wonder why I keep saying February, here's the advantage. The binge drinking question asks if you've had five or more drinks in a sitting in the past two weeks. It doesn't help us to do that question right after Purim. That would confound the data. It wouldn't help to do the question after Pesach. And some kid would say, well, I don't know. I had four kosos at the Seder. That does count. That doesn't count. If we do it when a month before there's no Purim and there's no Pesach and there's no confounding issue. And in terms of Kiddush, the question specifically asks more than just a taste or a sip. So a kid who had a sip of wine at Kiddush is not answering yes to even to the alcohol drinking question, let alone to the binge drinking question. Um, and by now it's become just a little bit of a chazaka. We did February 27th the first year. So we did February 27th the second year. So we had to pick a date to do it this year. I said, of course, we're going to do February 27th. So I don't know why that became a thing for us. So the survey shows us that drug use has been much lower. What it will show this year, I don't know. As you said correctly, with the legalization, which isn't technically legalization, but that's a conversation for another time of marijuana in New York and New Jersey, increasing availability, therefore, of marijuana, we might see things change. I don't know. Um, vaping was not as big a problem in even in our community in 2019, 2020, which was kind of the height of the vaping craze. And then vaping went down considerably during the pandemic. And I'm not sure 
what the data are going to show now, we'll have to look at them and see. But I think that there are a couple of differences. One difference is Shabbos. Can't consume marijuana on Shabbos. I guess you could eat edibles. That doesn't really seem to be how it's happening for most of our kids. And alcohol is widely available, widely consumed on Shabbos and Yom Tif. And the other thing that you pointed to, which I think is really important, is the adult modeling and the cultural signals. In our community, there are many cultural signals that drinking is a thing that grownups do. They do it to have fun, they do it to relax, and they do it even in connection to their expressions of or observances of Judaism. And marijuana, while I'm sure there are adults in our community who use marijuana, and I'm sure they use it to have fun, and I'm sure they use it to relax, it isn't plugged into the cultural fabric of our community in the same way. There's no culture of expensive, different marijuanas and tastings, and right, the way there is with, with whiskey, with scotch, and, and different bottles, and different tastings, and different this, and different that. And the guy who's a big knocker, so he shows up with a really expensive bottle of scotch. I'm not saying that that can't develop. Again, this is about gathering the data, reflecting where we are currently looking at it. But and I, and I want to be honest, I didn't predict this going in. Going in, we thought we were looking for the problem to be marijuana, and it turned out the problem was alcohol. But once I know the problem is alcohol, I don't have a hard time explaining why that's the case. Right. So let's talk about effective education. Obviously, you did the research in order to try to fix any issues. So based on that data, what type of effective education do you think can be or has been? Maybe it's been implemented in some of the schools already. And uh, as an overlay to that, is this the type of education that can work not only for modern Orthodox, but uh, the more more right-wing yeshivas as well? Okay, that is a great question. So here's the thing. We would all love for there to be a quick fix. You bring in this amazing speaker, you run that night of programming, and then everything's great and it's all fine. The only problem is the research shows that that is not how you change kids' behavior. It's not how you change adults' behavior. It's not how you change communities' behavior. Over the years that we were doing this, we connected with a group called the Center for Communities That Care at the University of Washington. We actually first connected with a guy named Harvey Milkman, who's a character and a half, who had been doing an intervention program in the country of Iceland for decades. We actually connected with him at some point. We spoke with him on Zoom. He's the Jew who grew up in the Bronx. The whole thing was really quite entertaining. Um, And then we found the Center for Communities That Care, which honestly might have been less entertaining, but was based in the United States and had been running these interventions in communities across the United States. And the things that they said to us, once you hear them, they sound really obvious, but none of us had been doing them before. They said, this is has to be handled with what we call a public health approach. A public health approach is not saying you, you're bad that you got measles. It's saying, let's send the nurses out to the whole community and make sure that anyone who didn't get a measles vaccination gets a vaccination. Let's run an education campaign. Let's run a vaccine. It's not about naming and shaming the individual student who uses It's about changing the context in which using happens. That's a public health campaign. It's not about punishing a kid. It's not about giving one speech. It's about the long, slow work of changing communities. So that's the first thing they said to us. If the adult modeling is there, if the adult using is there, if the culture around substances is there, then bringing in a great speaker to say to the kids, ABC is really not what's changing things. This does not mean, I want to say as clearly as I can, our goal, our desired outcome is not adult teetotaling. It's not that adults don't drink. That's not, is that too many negatives? It's fine for grownups to use alcohol responsibly, but certainly adult responsible alcohol use is possible and is fine. What we are talking about is changing the modeling of less than responsible adult alcohol use and the acts that's that's given to kids and at what age and then. And, and. So that's the slow, hard work of changing communities. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing we learned from the Center for Communities That Care. Kids don't make the right choices because you've intellectually convinced them. Well, if you use marijuana, then A, B, C. And if you drink too much, then D, E, F. That's not why kids make the right choices. And they don't make the right choices because you threaten them enough or scare them enough. This scared straight model where I'll show you a car that was mangled in a crash because there was a drunk driver is not, in fact, the most effective approach 
to dealing with this. Here is their big insight. Kids make healthy choices and healthy here means desirable. So that doesn't just mean not using drugs. That might mean connected to Frumkai, connected to their families, all kinds of positive choices that we want kids to make. Kids make positive choices because they feel bonded to the adults around them and because the adults around them have made clear to them what they think the positive or right or healthy choices are. Step one. Step two, how do adults feel bonded to the, how do kids, sorry, feel bonded to the adults around them? They don't feel bonded to the adults around them because the adults around them just say, you're amazing, you're great. Kids know that's not real and it doesn't give them a feeling of, of success or accomplishment that enables them to feel connected. Kids feel bonded to the adults around them. I'm now giving you over the Torah of what's called the social development strategy. Here's how kids feel bonded. They feel bonded if we give them skills, if we give them opportunities to use those skills so they're doing something meaningful, and then we give them recognition. We give them positive recognition for using those skills. And what skills opportunity recognition can look like is you teach a kid to lane and then he lanes and then you give him positive recognition for laning and skills and opportunity and recognition can look like you give a kid a certain amount of money to handle and she makes a budget and she handles it responsibly and she takes care of what she needs to handle and she feels accomplished and successful and skills and opportunity and recognition can look like at the Shabbos table you said you know who made this delicious potato cookie that you're all enjoying there are many different ways to manifest skills opportunity and recognition now, um, level, th this feeling of accomplishment is this basically replacing the alcohol use so they feel more satisfaction action in their lives. So it's not exactly that, although there's a separate book that talks about this idea of natural highs, actually, of kids seeking certain kinds of affirmation that they don't get in other ways. This is saying something else. It's saying that that ongoing structuring of a relationship helps the kid feel bonded to the adults. And then when the adults say, here's what I would like you to do, and here's what I would not like you to do, they choose to do it or not do it in the context of that relationship. And if you say to me, of course, that's so obvious. Of course, kids choose to do things in context of relationships, not because I brought in a great speaker to warn them about the dangers of marijuana. I will say to you that for us, this was a very serious gut check moment as a school. Is that what life in school feels like for kids? Does it feel like opportunity, skills, and recognition? You know what the answer is? Yes, if you're a strong student. And yes, if you're religiously bought it. And for everybody else, is that what school feels like? You come to school in the morning for Minion and we shh, 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 you through a whole Minion. And we tell you, sit down, Dada, you're talking this, do that, a whole Minion. And then you come to class and you, and if you think about school that way, who's getting opportunity, skills, and recognition? It reframed for us a whole bunch of things in how we did them in school, actually starting with davening in the morning. And one last question for you. H how do you gear results? Is it the annual or every two, three years you do the surveys and you see if the uh, penetration of drug use or alcohol use is going down? Yes, because we have learned from this, if we didn't know already, that our gut instincts and our bichsfaras are not a good guide to what's actually going on. You think the problem is drugs. I think the problem is alcohol. She thinks the problem Problem something else based on what she's seeing in her house and her community. In graduate school, they taught me the line that the plural of anecdote is not data. One story and another story and another story doesn't add up to data. And we have all had a million anecdotes about this, right? Everybody has their stories about the young man who drank too much and went home to his wife. Or we all have the stories, but we didn't actually know what we were dealing with. And as I've said a number of times, what we thought we were dealing with turned out not to be what we were dealing with. So there is really no substitute for gathering good data. And again, in the in the yeshivish world, this is hampered somewhat by the reluctance to give out these kinds of surveys that ask a lot of questions about a lot of stuff. You have to be willing to have your kids engage with a lot of questions in order to get the data. 
Um, but again, because I'm working for a school that has an affiliated research arm that's able to do this. I've, I've been on, in this work, I don't know, since at least 2018, so maybe 2017. Mahon Siach has been underwriting this work for years and years and years. And not only in our school, across the modern Orthodox community, this very big survey with work that we could eventually bring to the OU and share more broadly out into the firm community across the United States. So because I've had the, the luxury of doing this and learning about this approach and gradually over time coming to see the value of this kind of approach and then becoming Meshuggah Adavar, um, as my colleagues would tell you, I've, I've come to really realize that the only thing that's going to tell us how we're doing is intermittently, periodically, every couple of years gathering real data, because everything else is just, I think you think, I see with my kid, you see with your student, and none of us really, really knows what's going on. And that doesn't mean these interventions can't be used in communities that don't want to use the survey and don't want to gather data. The interventions are validated and proven and are worth doing. The approach is worth taking, even if it's not just the drugs and alcohol. And I want to emphasize that this is this is protective against all kinds of things, this kind of work and this kind of approach. And so at a certain point, we have to say, Michelle comes, that's, you know, Michelle will come, but until then, we're going to be working on the long-term approach. Very good. Very important words. And that applies in many things. It applies in chinuch, it applies in uh, drug prevention, and it applies in teaching sneus. It applies in all of these areas. There are no, no short, quote-unquote, fixes. And the same approach is true for all of them. Teaching sneus is exactly the same thing. Girls and women are going to make different choices about how they dress, not because you yelled at them enough and not because you punished them enough, and probably not even because you taught them helpless sneus enough. They're going to feel connected to a community and a way of life, and then they're going to want to dress in a way that's in accordance with that community and that way of life. And there's not really shortcutting building that connection. So you could already hear that I've become a little crazed on the subject of that it's about bonding, building that connection and communicating clear beliefs and healthy standards. It's not just I love you, I love you. It's I love you and I hope you love me and I'm going to do the work to make that happen. And I'm going to communicate what my beliefs and standards are because once the personal connection is there, then you may actually want to follow my beliefs and standards. But op, you know, absent that connection, there's not enough yelling in the world and there's not enough great speakers in the world and there's not enough intellectualizing the world that's going to build that kind of buy-in and that kind of connection. Dr. Schwartz, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's greatly appreciated. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Joining us now is Dave. Dave is a not too long ago graduate from a uh, fairly right-wing yeshiva high school in the tri-state area. We won't get any more specific than that. And uh, Dave is here to share with us uh, his thoughts on our topic, how does use and abuse occur, and what lessons can we learn from his experiences and his friends' experiences? Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, how are you? Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Dave. So, so Dave, why don't we start out with uh, how did it start? Use yours or your friends? How old were you? How did you access whatever substance it was? T- talk to us about uh, what happened. Um, so now I'm reflecting back on my childhood a little bit. Thinking back, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, actually. It was perm and, you know, everyone got drunk. So I did too. And it was a lot of fun. Um, but that was a one and done scenario. Um, it wasn't really like, okay, I drink. Um, but then I went to high school. Um, I think it was ninth grade, 10th grade, one of the two. I had a friend that was like very into drinking. His family was, they would always drink good bottles of wine. And it really intrigued me because I was like, I was always looking for that something to become a man. Like, you know, feel like I'm part of something. Like, I'm a giver. And like, when he told me about these wines, I started learning about it. And I was all fascinated. I was like, this will make me a man. And then I started slowly started drinking here and there. I would go to his house, we'd have a beer. Then slowly I got my father to buy me wine and stuff. And like, that's where my drinking career really started. And it was like, it was like, I felt like a million bucks. The minute I touched booze, I was like, I felt like there was nothing, like it was love at first sight. It was never like something that I felt so good about when I touched it at first sight. 
Uh, so it was a friend that was inspired it, and and your father knew what was going on. He was buying you an addition, or he just didn't didn't have an exact sense of what was happening. Um, he didn't have an exact sense. I also knew how to hustle my way around, like a gas station. Knew a friend got someone, you know, how to smile properly. So I always got, you know, I always got whenever it wasn't that much, but when I would get a beer or something, it would be either a friend or I knew someone to get it for me. Um, that was really in ninth ninth grade. Okay, and how did it progress with from there? Ninth, tenth, um, so on, and and was it other people as well using, or were you a, like a, a lone ranger on this? Um, so to progress, I think it was um, tenth grade. We got we got a little worse, not as bad. I went to camp, and in camp we got really really bad. It happens to be. I brought my own booze up, but I got staff members. I got made friends with a lot of people, and people would uh, take care of me. I would make a deal with them basically, and they would give me booze, and I would I would basically do with whatever they want me to do, whatever it was. It was usually like um, like let's say like. I was, let's say, a waiter in a camp or something. So get the job done well, and I'll give you boots. That was pretty much like, that was that was it. Um, so that was 10th grade. After 10th grade, my parents were actually very concerned about it, but they really didn't have control over me. Like, they didn't, I didn't really listen to them. I did whatever I wanted. Like, I was still in yeshiva and everything, but still, when it came to that department, I always had an excuse. Like, either it was, um, I don't know, it was either like... It was a simcha, it was something else. It was always something for, it was always another reason why I'm drinking. Like, I remember like in 10th, I think it was, now this was 11th grade already, but like in 11th grade, that's when it really, really picked up. Um, I just started drinking, like, I got more depressed in general. I really wasn't happy with my school. And I just started, I didn't realize this at the time, and I became very religious. Like, I would sit and learn like eight hours a day, but I would basically drink booze, like, I'll use once, twice a week, just randomly show up tonight's hater, like semi drunk, or just like any Jewish occasion, I would drink. Like it was perm cotton, so we got to get drunk. Like it was like, I remember one time we went to uh, a friend's bar right before Pesach, my friend's brother's bar, and we go with four or five friends. I look at them, I'm like, we got to do beer hummus right before Pesach. It was six bottles there. We finished everything because it's before Pesach. And that's really, really when my, my drinking career really took off. I would literally drink random nights. I would go to like, I would go to one of the shtibles and uh, that had a store there. I would literally buy there. They didn't ID me at all. As well as like, I'd go to Kedushim. Like basically, yeah, I would drink on my own, but I would drink with friends. It was just like, like I was 16, 17 and like, no one bothered me. I did whatever I wanted. Like one day Kiddush, pulled myself up and continued moving along. Like it was just another day. So there was a lot of availability is what it sounds like. You can go to this shul and you can go to that shul and there's a Kiddush here and a Kiddush there and there's a Kiddush everywhere. Pretty much, yeah. Uh-huh. And and did anyone ever tell you, stop, this isn't good for you, uh, you're going overboard here? Did anyone have a sense in school at any of the kiddishes or just another person drinking? Um, at that point, no one really understood what was going on. They, they knew I would drink a lot and be like, maybe drink less, you're getting too drunk. But they really didn't understand the magnitude of how much I drank. I just had, a, I, I just thought I was a man and I had a high tolerance and I could just drink endlessly and no real fiasco happened. Like no terrible things happened. So I got away with it. And like my father, by the meal, let's say he would buy me like, let's say alcohol. He didn't know how much I was drinking. So it would be like, let's say I would have a drink. You turn around for two minutes, I'd pack in three and then just be like one more for the end of the meal. Like, so basically he never really knew what was going on. Like, yeah. 
he knew like there was booze in the house, but like the amounts of like Friday night, how much I finished, like he didn't really know exactly what was going on. Uh, and your friends also, were, were there other people drinking even half of this level? Was this an environment thing or or, or were you mostly on your own doing this? Um, so in camp, it was, yeah, it was pretty, it was an environment we would drink together. In school, sometimes yes, sometimes not, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like the, the type, the school I was in was not really like an insane drinking school. There were some guys that drank a lot, but as a whole, it wasn't a drinking school. Can, can we end off with lessons that you've learned and anything that you can tell to students high school students or earlier thereafter, maybe we'll have three buckets, students and teachers, administrators and parents. Do you have light? Good question. Regarding students, like it's a very, very, it's very hard. Like I like tell a student when he's just like really struggling in life and like, and all of a sudden he sees something that'll give him life. It's very hard to tell him not to stay away from it. I think it goes a lot deeper of like, what are they what are they getting the attention they need? Well, I'm saying it's a whole different discussion, but it's it can like it's a res- basically it's a result of all their surroundings a lot of times, like you know, in the beginning, like at some point for me, it wasn't anymore, but in the beginning, it definitely was had an effect based on my surroundings. um teachers with teachers, it's it's interesting because like they try to discipline it, but they don't really know half the time like, I only had one Rebbe that knew what was going on and he didn't really, like the one time he saw me, he was like, he drank himself. So he didn't really care. Like he was, he just looked at me and he's like, L'chaim. like he's, I smell like a bottle of booze when I bite nightstand. He looks at me he's like, L'chaim. so, and then other Rebbeim, they try to get you in trouble, but it doesn't like, when you want to drink, it's not really going to stop you. You figure out ways how to do it. Two things. Uh, number one, they should be aware. Awareness. That's very important. And, um, and, Number two is knowing how to deal with it, that this isn't an issue of simply misbehavior and punish somebody and it's going to right, get right on track. That's not the issue. There's something more, much more fundamental and deep that has to be dealt with in, in a, a different way. Mm-hmm. I do. That's what I really believe. I think alcohol is a result, like drug use, alcohol. I've seen it with friends around now. I speak to people. It's a result really of, of, of our environment. And I'm not saying... I'm not putting down the uh, like our environment as religious or not nothing to do with that. Really, I'm talking about from a mental health standpoint. That's where it really starts off. Um, where does it end? It ends in addiction, which has nothing to do with their environment anymore. But definitely in the beginning, it starts there. Right, right. And and messages to parents. Messages to parents. Um, for one, what you do, your kids see, and. If you drink a lot of booze Shabbos afternoon in your shul and come home and expect your kid not to do it, either he might not do it or he'll be just as big of a drinker as you and he can't understand why. So it's, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say. And for those that don't, it's try to be loving and accepting of your kids for who they are and hope for the best and pray to God because society today, you never know. Right, right. Dave, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate it. I I can imagine this wasn't an easy conversation for you, but uh, definitively a a real benefit for our listeners and myself personally. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.
Joining us now is Mrs. Leanne Foreman. Mrs. Foreman is a former attorney for 27 years, and now she dedicates her time and efforts to CCSA, which is an organization she founded together with her husband. CCSA stands for Communities Confronting Substance Use and Addiction. Mrs. Foreman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Mrs. Foreman, you had a successful legal career and you left it all. You were a corporate attorney for a number of years, and now you took a very different direction, heading an organization whose primary focus is educating high school students, their parents and teachers about the risks of drugs and alcohol. What inspired you to make that change? So there are very few times in life that um, you feel like the hand of God is pointing and saying, this is the way to go. This is something my husband, Etail, is very fond of saying when we speak about this. Our family went through a very difficult period. Our second oldest of five, Ilana, went through a period of substance use and addiction about six years ago. Thank God she is now five plus years in recovery. And when we went through it, we felt very isolated and alone. And we really felt like there was no one to talk to. Nobody was talking about substance use. Certainly nobody was talking about addiction as something that happened in the Jewish community. And when we came out the other side of this, and I wouldn't say we're completely away from it, but when we came out the other side and, and Ilana was thankfully doing better, we kind of turned to each other and said, why don't we talk about this? Why don't we do something about this? And really the catalyst for that was my third oldest, Gabrielle, who now lives in Boca Raton. Um who basically said he talks about it openly with his peers. And this was a young man who was, you know, looking for Shaduchim ultimately and in a community where, you know, you may not think you talk about these things openly. And I was very impressed with his openness and his bravery. And I said, we should be candid like that. Why can't we just say it? So we did. We had an event in April 2018. We did it in our hometown of Teaneck. We did it in a local high school and 700 people came that night to hear our story. And it wasn't just us who spoke. My husband did the speaking that evening. Um, it was a rabbi from the community. It was somebody in recovery. It was a clinician. I'm really talking about the prevalence of substance use and addiction in the Jewish community, that we are not immune from it. So that was now more than four years ago. And the outpouring of stories and people dealing with this and people struggling and people needing help within our community really touched me. I'm also not a one and done kind of person. I'm very solution oriented, probably what made me a good lawyer, I guess. So I knew that I wanted to take this further. And after a couple of years of working in this space and dealing with this issue, I quickly realized this was going to be a full-time job, much more than the law. Oh, it's pr pretty amazing that you're dedicating yourself to this and call a kavod to you and, and uh, your husband. So hey, something really flagged uh, an issue to me when I saw on your website, the CCSA website, there's a statement that says, not if, but when our children encounter drugs and alcohol. And I wanted to know what that means. If you think given the current situation, the environment and society and in our schools, do you think it's really inevitable that kids will encounter drugs, alcohol, not necessarily using themselves or having friends use it. How, 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 how do you see things? Because it sounds like it's something that is inevitable. So I think there are a few different layers to that question. The first layer is exposure. Um, our kids are exposed to substances, like it or not, they are exposed and not in the context where most listeners might be thinking, oh, my kid goes to a party and gets offered something. Just seeing a kiddish just seeing a lachayim, just seeing the prevalence of alcohol in our Jewish rituals and the chagim and Shabbos, that in and of itself is, is exposure. Your kid sees something and is curious. What is that? Um, 
when we do parenting we t- workshops, we talk about modeling behaviors around substances, about having a healthy relationship with substances. What does that look like? And part of that is not glorifying substances, meaning, you know, do you come to the table with a $200 bottle of, of whiskey and say, look at this, you know, this amazing bottle of scotch I just got, and I can't wait to try it. And your kid picks up on that and thinks, wow, this is something to be coveted. This is something that I should want when I'm a grown up, or even unfortunately sooner if they're mimicking grownups. So exposure comes in many different ways. I mean, just social media, the news here in the States, the legalization of marijuana, the debate around whether or not it should be recreational, you know, even if you're following current events, you're going to see that. You have fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, which is responsible for a very high rate of overdoses. So if you see the news about overdose rates and fentanyl, already you're being exposed. So that's exposure. Um, The second level to this, and you were talking about, you know, inevitability, given the statistics, given what we know, it is inevitable that our children will be either confronted with substance use itself, meaning offered to them, they have to figure out how to turn it down if they don't want to do it, um, or they might engage in it for any number of reasons. But it is also inevitable that somebody they know, if it's not themselves, is going to struggle with addiction. The rates are that high that they will they will come across it, whether it's in, in high school, whether it's in college, whether it's a family member. Um, we've had many, many children report to us, either older siblings or parents or uncles and aunts who struggle with addiction, actual addiction, not just using substances. So we want to equip them with all this information and all these facts, not in a way that scares them, but to prepare them. You mentioned legalization of marijuana, and that's obviously been been recent. That's New York, New Jersey, and other places as well. We're also coming off, hopefully it's towards the end of Corona, and that must have had an impact. I would assume that everyone was at home and now they come back. And I guess there's a concept of let's enjoy life a little bit. So based on those two issues, legalization of marijuana coming back from Corona, what trends do you see in our communities? And what would you say the the current uh, usage rates are in the high school and any uh, real concerns that you see that are changing and increasing and popping up at this point? So I don't think it's so much coming off of Corona and saying, oh, let's, you know, let's live a little bit. I think it's the opposite. I think people are struggling with mental health issues as a result of of COVID. And I think the isolation, especially amongst our kids and the reintegration into social situations and dealing with the stress, the uncertainty, the anxiety that COVID produced, you are dealing with a lot of different issues. I'm not sure, you know, I don't have statistics on what percentage of kids use substances because they have mental health issues or co-occurring disorders, what percentage use because they're peer pressured into doing something or what percentage are just curious. But there are a whole host of reasons why, you know, our children are using substances and mental health being really a very dominant factor. So a lot of kids are self-medicating. A lot of kids are, you know, coming out of this, again, uncertain anxiety producing time and now they're dealing and grappling with other issues, they may easily turn to substances to deal with those issues. In terms of the legalization of marijuana, the biggest issue with that is the perception of harm, that we have created a situation where marijuana, I mean, sometimes people call it the new nicotine, sometimes people call it the new alcohol. Uh, It's just a perception that it's not a big deal. Um, Our kids are definitely responding to that and, and seeing its legalization and seeing its use amongst 
adults, they're saying, you know, there's no issue with using it and why can't I use it? Um, and there are a lot of issues associated. I mean, any substance under age when your brain is still developing, when your brain is still forming those connections is going to have an impact. But marijuana is underestimated in terms of its dangers, its addictive qualities, and the risk of underage use. It's not even a question that people can develop marijuana use disorders later in life, but certainly if you're using it under let's say the age of 18, you are four to seven times even more likely to develop a use disorder. I, I see you're very clear on using the word use as opposed to addiction. And indeed, that is what we're talking about because some people will get addicted and some people won't. And, and our focus is on use and use in the high schools and the schools. To, to quantify things, are there any statistics available on what the usage is in, in high schools, yeshiva high schools, how we can compare to the secular world? Um, and that would be high school and it could be even earlier. Are there any quantitative statistics that we can look at to see uh, what's really going on? So you mentioned before that we go into high schools, we actually go in as early as sixth grade to middle schools and start prevention education. And the common wisdom and the evidence-based practices are that you go in early and often and you create this approach because you want to educate children before they even start using. The average age of initial use is somewhere between 12 and 14. And I know anecdotally, we have 12 presenters educational presenters who go into our middle and high schools and teach our curriculum and talk about their own journey because they themselves have lived experience with addiction. They're in recovery. They've dealt with it in their lives. And all of them report starting their initial use before the age of 14. And then so, the yeshiva high schools. These are yeshiva. These are our yeshiva high school educate. I mean, they were educated in yeshivas. They are now young adults. They are now young, like my daughter, they're young adults in recovery from addiction. They all report their first use of a substance, be it alcohol or marijuana. And those are the two most commonly used, um, started somewhere between the ages of 11 and 14. Uh -huh. And, and now one, one thing that's coming to my mind is how are they accessing the drugs? Meaning these are teenagers. Maybe they get a little bit of allowance. I don't know what allowance rates are. People give allowances nowadays. And I, I don't know with inflation, has it gone up from $5 to $10 a week if people are giving allowances, but how do you, can you afford drugs? And we're talking about alcohol, a bottle of alcohol can be fairly expensive unless they're getting it at the, at their parents' homes and uh, marijuana. I have no clue what, what the going rate is for marijuana. So, so I, we actually, I have a very good relationship with a narcotics detective on the, in the uh, Bergen County prosecutor's office. And I decided this morning, I'm going to ask him that very question because I knew you were going to ask it. Um, he says a marijuana cigarette is normally 10 to $15 and a cartridge of THC oil is about $40, which could last days or weeks, depending on how often it's used. That's not a lot of money. That's not expensive at all. In alcohol, you want to go buy, you know, a cheap bottle of, I don't know, Smirnoffs or whatever um, the knockoff <laughs> vodkas are. You know, you can send somebody in to buy for you. That's, I mean, our kids have access to cash, but you don't need cash to buy things. You don't need a lot of money to buy substances. The three most commonly used substances in our middle schools and our high schools is alcohol, marijuana and nicotine. Those are the three most common. And those are what we address when we give our prevention education curriculum. We're not talking to kids in a way that's going to scare them. We're really just equipping them with the facts. What are these substances? What do they do to your brain and body as it's developing and growing? And what is the risk of addiction? So you talked before about 
use, talking to them about the use of a substance and its impact on them is a way to empower them to make healthy choices. It's a way to inform them. These are the risks you're taking. And then with somebody standing before them, who hopefully is relatable and personable saying, I myself went through this and this is my journey. This is my path. Addiction is not something that happens overnight. It's not something that someone chooses. It's not a character flaw. It's not a moral failing, but there are certain people who are predisposed. And when we put somebody in front of them, who is a young Jewish person who says, yeah, I had my first drink at a bar mitzvah, or, you know, I had a lachayim because my uncle said, you know, now you're a man, whatever, at the age of 12. Um, and that made me feel good. It made me feel better. A lot of our, our presenters talk about just not feeling good about themselves and somehow drinking that alcohol or smoking that joint made them feel more sure of themselves in the moment. Again, it's that self-medicating. It's that, you know, some of them had anxiety, some of them had depression, some of them, you know, were dealing with other issues. You know, there's no cookie cutter way of looking at somebody and saying, you're going to be an addict or you're not going to be an addict. If you use, this is what's going to happen. And if you use, this is not going to happen to you. It is much more complex than that. It is, you know, in many ways, a symptom of other things, but it changes the way the brain works. It impacts the brain in a very, very profound way. And for some people, that profound way takes them on a very unfortunate journey, which you know, in many cases ends up in death. Right. Now you've been talking about the high schools and usage in the high schools and uh, the education that is necessary for use, abuse. What, what schools, how many schools are you in your education program? What schools are you in? And maybe more importantly, what schools have you not gotten into? And, and why do you think that's the case? As I just want to emphasize, we're also in the middle schools and we're also educating the kids that are much younger. So not just high schools. Um, it's important for people to hear that because the earlier you start having this conversation, the better the outcomes. The other piece of this is that it's not just our high schoolers that are using substances. Yes, they are more frequently using substances, but I've had seventh, eighth graders tell me they use vapes, tell me they've had a drink. You know, it's 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 out there. We just, we can't close our eyes to that. We will be in likely over 50 schools this year. Um, we are in, really spread out through the New York, New Jersey area, the greater New York, New Jersey area. We're in Philadelphia. We just came back from a really successful trip in Florida, where we presented in three different schools there. We've been in Chicago. We are hopefully heading to Columbus, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, possibly Boston. So we're out there. We're, we're really, we call the schools our partners and we really do believe in that partnership. We believe that in speaking with the schools and speaking with the parent body at those schools and in speaking with the children, we're creating this triangle of dialogue and awareness and education so that schools, parents, and children are aware of the dis dangers of substance use and can talk to each other about it. And schools can hopefully recognize or parents can recognize if a child is struggling and intervene earlier rather than later on in the process. Okay. So, so the schools, the type of schools that you're in, are they on the more modern side? Are they more on the yeshiva side? Is it a splattering of the two? Um, there's a little bit of a spectrum. I would say we really made our strongest pen penetration in the modern Orthodox world, partially because we started out in Teaneck and the schools in Teaneck. Um, that's where we live. That's where we have credibility, word of mouth, guidance counselors, principals, Rebeum saying, you know, this is a great program. This is a great program. And then people from outside the community calling us and saying, can you bring it to us? We definitely try to adapt our content. We're very sensitive to schools and what they will or will not 
expose their children to. So I've had schools, you know, where sometimes we'll use a Disney image, you know, just to like for our younger kids, like a Disney image. So I know Disney is not something you want your kids to see. I can take that out. I can replace that. Or, you know, we have, let's say a a teenage girl narrating something about the brain. Maybe a boy's school doesn't want that. So we do try to be very sensitive to the content part of it. I think it's been harder to get into the more right-wing yeshivish schools. I've been told numerous times it's not going to happen. I don't believe it's not going to happen. I don't think it's a matter of if, I think it's a matter of when, because this is an issue that's impacting us all. And I anecdotally from our support group, which we have for family members, I have members in that group who are from these right-wing communities, are from these more yeshivish circles. So we know actually it is happening. Um, I would argue in some cases, some of the issues are even bigger They've, there have been people who have reported to me high usage of vapes, e-cigarettes um, in certain communities. There are communities that alcohol is very, very prevalent and, you know, not treated um, as carefully amongst our youth as maybe we should be treating it. So, and I'm not stereotyping and I'm not generalizing and I don't mean to offend in any way, but I think that certain communities are either afraid to look at this issue. Perhaps they're, they don't think it's an issue. Perhaps they're ignorant that it, it is really an issue. They think it happens to other people. It happens to outsiders and they're distrustful. They're distrustful of us as coming from you know a more modern perspective. They are not necessarily willing to let us in. I think that if we can get our foot in the door and start talking to people who silently are suffering and silently are struggling and silently are seeing it amongst their fellow community members, then perhaps we'll have a way in. But I think that's going to take time and persistence, which I'm not, I don't know about time, but I definitely have a lot of persistence. <laughs> you know, we, we often see that there's a lag regardless of uh, w- what grouping in in orthodoxy, being it modern or less modern. I don't know if that's a word less modern, but uh, not modern or, or you know, there, there's a lag time till it takes us to address these issues. And uh, if it's an issue, it obviously should be addressed properly and uh, not wait too long because the damage is happening. You mentioned that the focus that you have in the education in the schools is alcohol, number one, not in this order necessarily, alcohol, marijuana, and nicotine. And obviously there are more severe, um, stronger substances that are being used in our society as well. So I wanted to ask about the, uh, those others, and, and and maybe it's a related question, maybe it's the same question. What's your single greatest concern? Like, what, what keeps you up at night? Is is it these uh, alcohol, marijuana, nicotine usage that's more common, or do you have uh, severe concerns about the more serious stuff? I wish I could narrow it down to one thing that keeps me up at night. That would be wonderful, amazing. Um, it, it's Again, a multi-layer question. You're asking like, you know, more complicated question than I probably can answer in the time allowed here. But I think that alcohol, marijuana, and nicotine are the most prevalent substances. They're the most common. They're the most easily accessible to our children. That's why we cover that. We also talk about amphetamines. That's also being misused by teenagers. So things like Adderall, um, Ritalin, you know, ADHD medications, oftentimes unwittingly, even a kid will say, I need to stay up and study. Can you give me one of your Adderalls? So we talk about not sharing medication, being aware of the addictive components in certain medications, stimulants, antidepressants, opioids, painkillers, So we make them aware of that. So if you get your wisdom teeth out or you fall off your bike and you hurt your knee, you know, understand that a medication and doctors are not so willing to prescribe these things anymore because of the opioid epidemic, but understand that a medication being prescribed to you or even an ADHD ADHD medication may have addictive qualities 
But if you're taking it carefully under your doctor's orders with your parents' supervision, and you're not sharing it and you're not taking something that's not intended for you, then you're fine. We're not telling kids to get off their medications. So those are, I think, kind of the four main things. We In high school, we do talk about fentanyl. If it's asked of us in middle school, we will talk about it. It's something to be aware of. There's a whole campaign out there called One Pill Can Kill, which is about the counterfeit pills that are out there with fentanyl in them that unfortunately, you know, look like candy in some cases or disguised to look like Oxycontin or, you know, Adderall or Percocet or whatever. They make these counterfeit pills that you can buy on the street that literally one pill can kill you because it has fentanyl in it. It's so potent. What keeps me up at night? I think that the marijuana thing is a big thing right now for me because um, you're talking about a potency that we've never seen before. This is, people like to say, this is not your grandma's hot, <laughs> grandma's weed, you know, it's much, much stronger. It used to be, you know, let's say 20 years ago, less than 5% THC content. Now you can get upwards of 85, 90, 90, 95% content in, in products. So it is incredibly potent. The forms that it's being taken in, particularly with edibles, the the exposure to your body and your brain to the substance is much longer in time as opposed to smoking a joint. If you smoke a, if you smoke weed, it hits you right away. It affects you right away. When you eat an edible, it could take anywhere from a half hour to two hours to really take effect. So people are eating more and more. So you're not only talking about more potency, but you're also talking greater amounts. And there's just so little data out there as to what that can do to you and the way it's being packaged. And it's very tantalizing to kids, these edibles. There are lookalike products out there that if you don't look carefully enough, you won't even know that it's actually has THC in it. And I just think we're creating, um, like I said to you before, the statistics are out there that, you know, it's, I think 30% of users will develop a disorder in terms of using marijuana. If you're under 18, you're four to seven times more likely to develop okay, a marijuana use disorder. Yeah, this, this a marijuana is... use disorder doesn't have to be addiction. Marijuana use disorder can just be a diagnosable condition where there's physical symptoms of withdrawal, where you, you know, rely on it to function, but it doesn't have to be full-blown addiction. The problem is that sometimes people who are prone to addiction aren't getting enough of that feeling from marijuana. And then that's when they move on to harder substances. And yes, I am afraid of the harder substances. I'm terrified of fentanyl, but I'm just right now we're trying to stem the tide early so that it doesn't lead to that in the future. Right. This should keep all of us awake for sure. Uh, let me ask you something that that's really on my mind. Teaching middle school and especially high school, there's a lot of peer pressure, typically not to be focusing on your studies in school and to be <laughs> understanding that TOSOS. It's typically the uh, the negative things that uh, children oftentimes gravitate to or older children inspire, influence them. H how do you have a prevention program when it's talking logically about the negative um, the negative impact of drugs and, and usage when children aren't necessarily, necessarily thinking long-term, they're more thinking short-term and enjoyment. And, and even if they would be thinking long-term, but oftentimes that peer pressure is going to be stronger than any logic that they would be able to apply to these types of situations. That's an excellent question because it's exactly what we struggle with. We we are having somebody stand up there, somebody who was in their 20s or 30s saying, look what happened to me. And these kids looking at that person and saying, that is so far off. That's, you know, that's like 50 years from now, it's never going to happen to me. And we're trying to teach them that the choices they make now do have an impact on their future. We try to teach them that in all contexts, not just, you know, substance use. 
But it's a very hard balance between not scaring them because, again, we're not into scare tactics. We're very real. We're very relatable. But to teach them that substances have a way of hijacking the brain over time and that what they're doing now could lead to something down the line. Like I said, it doesn't happen overnight. It could take many years, but it's it's making them aware and also creating the a way for them to self-assess. Am I drinking too much? You know, is this binge drinking? We talk about binge drinking and what that looks like. Is this binge drinking? Am I doing this because I'm being pressured into doing it? Am I doing it because I'm trying to cope with bad feelings? Am I trying to escape from something? Do I have something else going on? So we give them those tools to sort of self-assess and and question their usage and question their relationship with substances if they are engaged in use or planning on doing it. Um, I've had many kids come up to me their senior year of high school and say, next year I'm in Israel. I know where to go to the bars. I've never drank before, but I plan on going and drinking and I'm going to go see what it's all about because I'm going to be 18 there. And, you know, we have to teach them what does that look like? How do you safely engage in substance use at the age of 18 where you are legal? What does been drinking look like? What is alcohol poisoning? How much is too much? Right. So that's more of a harm reduction message when they're older, but It's more than that. It's teaching them healthy coping skills. It's teaching them refusal skills. When you're in the moment, when somebody presents you with something, if you're in that situation, what can you do? How can you help a friend you're concerned about? I can't tell you how many, we we have an exercise we do in the high schools and in the middle schools where we give index cards out in the middle of our program. And we say, write down any question you want anonymously. I would say a good 20 to 30% of the cards we get back. And that's ranging from seventh grade to 12th grade. We don't give it out in sixth grade. Sixth grade is our just intro program, but in seventh to to 12th grade, when we get back these index cards, a significant chunk of them are about worrying about a friend, worrying about themselves or worrying about a family member. So they are seeing something that's concerning them. How, How do I help somebody who's addicted to nicotine? I have a friend who's using drugs. Every time I talk to them, they push me away. You know, my father uses marijuana, my mother drinks. Whatever it is, we're we're getting that glimpse into their most pressing concerns, and it's there. It is the concern is there. So we want them to feel not that they have to solve the problem; they're too young to solve the problem. But how to get to the next right step? How to turn to a trusted adult? If the person in your life, your parent, let's say, is the one struggling, who else can you talk to? Who else can you turn to? Because that's a heavy load for a kid to carry, and we don't want them to have to deal with that. So we are looking at ways to equip them with better coping skills when something stresses them, pressures them, makes them feel bad about themselves, surrounding themselves with positive people, making positive choices, and these refusal skills, how to turn down something, turn away from something if you're presented with an uncomfortable situation and ask yourself, is this something I really want to do? Do I really want to engage in this? And like I said at the beginning, many, many reasons why kids use substances, curiosity, self-medication, escape. It's not just to have a good time. For some kids, maybe it is, but for many kids, it's much more complicated than that. This is certainly an ongoing, necessary education. It's not going to be a one-time or one-week process. And I guess that's why you take the three-prong approach as students, educating parents and teachers as well. I have one more question for you, but I do want to say, I actually saw you and your husband, your daughter, your son talking on a panel. It was hosted by Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Somebody knew that I was working on this topic and sent it to me. And that's why I was lucky enough to get you on the show because I wasn't aware of your organization. And I do want to thank Rabbi Goldberg for having hosted 
posted that that event and it's worthwhile finding it and watching it because that gets more into the personal side of things. We're talking more about facts and concepts, but that gets more into the personal side of things. Uh, and I did want to mention that. Um, do you have more capacity to take on more schools? And and if you do, because you have 12 people going around, I don't know what the capacity is, how long each of the programs are. Um, how do people get in touch with you if, if, if you are amenable to taking on more schools? The way to reach us is either through our website, which is jewishccsa.org, or through our email, which is info at jewishccsa.org. And I'm willing to speak to anybody about anything on this topic. But I've gotten calls from England, from Israel, from communities all throughout the United States. And um, for every call I get, I, I have to assume there are 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 people who are not calling and who are suffering silently. And those are the people that we really want to reach. Absolutely. Please call if anyone has any issues, questions, and uh, whatever, whatever it can be. Mrs. Foreman is here to help. Mrs. Foreman, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, really eye-opening and very appreciated and necessary. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Joining us now is Rabbi David Goldwasser. Rabbi Goldwasser is the Rav of Kal Base Yitzchak in Brooklyn. He is a noted author and speaker. And one of his Numerous books is called The Addicted Soul, all about addictions of teens and adults. Exactly on point, he wrote the book. Rabbi Goldwasser, thank you so much for joining us. Rabbi Wasserman, it is a simcha to be together once again, especially knowing the tremendous impact that the program has in the entire world. The last time I was on, I was stopped by people from all different points, all different backgrounds who had listened and had wanted to comment about it. I never would imagine that one effort should reach out to so many people around the world. So if anyone sees Rabbi Goldwasser after the show, please stop him and give a yeshakayach. Thank you so much. So Rabbi Goldwasser, let's start at the beginning. We're talking about drugs and alcohol in schools, in particular in high schools. And, and the question that's very much on my mind is, how does a student, a yeshiva student, typically start using drugs, alcohol? What's the motivation? Where does it come from? The first time, how does it begin? Uh, usually it is an exposure that could happen either at a simcha or it could be out of school at an activity. Someone brought uh, some joints, some marijuana to a weekend, to a Shabbaton. Someone brought in a small bottle of liquor uh, usually it's somebody who's slightly older that introduces it to the younger person. Why people feel the need to introduce things, to be the one that showed the, the light to another person, that would be an interesting study. But unfortunately, there are many people that are looking for company that want others to be involved in the same uh, activities, at-risk activities that they are involved in, and they feel the need to spread it to others. It could happen in the school yard. It could happen uh, oftentimes at a weekend, or if there is a day Sunday, people going out together. It just is uh, typically by somebody who has already begun to be a user and they spread it to someone else. They want to show them how great it is, what the experience is, 
you smoke a uh, marijuana joint and you don't realize that you forget your problems. It's a different experience. It's not addicting. Don't worry about it. It's less dangerous than alcohol. I've heard everything. And unfortunately, that is the way that it uh, it spreads. Now, there is a margin that uh, we'd have to give credit to of the internet. The internet can show you a tutorial on how to drink, how to drink in the beginning, how to begin to uh, experiment with drugs, all the different kinds of drugs and the exhilarating experience that it produces. So people have all different ways of learning today. Anybody that has a phone really can access the information and it's exciting. Rabari, I have to tell you, I was walking down Avenue U yesterday here in Brooklyn. All of a sudden, I see a gorgeous new store lit up like uh, like the Menorah. It was unbelievable. And I looked at I thought, wow, this is a beautiful store. On the top, it says Smoke Joint. Title of the store, Smoke Joint. Inside, all the paraphernalia, cannabis could be bought, all the various different types of the hookah. I, I, I couldn't believe the store was the most beautiful store on Avenue U. Without a question, it was the nicest store, almost inviting, come in and see what we have. Even you don't smoke, try it. It was probably the busiest store as well. <laughs> I'm sure. Right next to the pizza store. So so we're not talking now necessarily about addiction. We're talking about usage. So so usage, the question is, how common is usage by students in yeshiva high schools? Have there been any quantitative studies done talking more about the, the right-wing yeshiva high schools. What, what's your experience? Uh, it's interesting that there were uh, two uh, scientific surveys that were started. Uh, we have uh, one particular survey that was begun around uh, the time of the Magefa, and that uh, the problem was that it included uh, where there are uh, single, for instance, uh, male schools and female schools, it had included the separate data for them. The What we're not sure of is if they were completely yeshiva schools, if they were schools that identified uh, Jewishly, but not necessarily yeshiva or Beis Yaakov. Uh, the, the percentages that we have are not conclusive. I think that it really, it, it, there was never a conclusive study or survey that was held, although uh, there, were, there was a very good effort. The hard figures were that in some of the schools, the percentages matched secular schools, the public schools, which is uh, extremely uh, concerning. And uh, others, we don't know the exact numbers that uh, that they were able to come up with. There would have to be a uni, uh, unified survey that would be across the board in all yeshivas or all basiakos in order to uh, get some hard numbers that we could really go by. I don't think that we have it uh, at this point. The only thing that we do know that in certain situations, we uh, were pretty much close to the numbers in the secular uh, community. And would that be boys and girls or just boys? Uh, it, it is more in the boys uh, area. 
the uh, alarming uh, factor is that in the girls' uh, high schools, there are an incidence. Drinking is readily available to anybody today. So the uh, alcohol uh, is a greater problem in certain areas, although it doesn't take uh, long for uh, people to catch on, especially with the availability of marijuana today. Uh, there is a truck. I was in the city in Manhattan and there was a truck that was pointed out to me, openly advertised. You can go up like you used to go to buy ice cream from the ice cream truck. You can go up to the window and you can buy various uh, things, various articles and uh, materials for smoking, in particular for smoking marijuana. That, um, let me say, that forbidden line, I don't think it doesn't exist anymore. Somebody had asked me uh, in a community forum, uh, isn't it true that there is a greater addiction factor in alcohol than in uh, in smoking in the for, uh, marijuana. Uh, the point could certainly be argued. But what I'm afraid is that even though they say it's not a gateway drug, that marijuana will not lead on to other things. I'm afraid that it is uh, just the beginning for a lot of people. A young woman came in before Rosh Hashanah. She wanted to do tshuva. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure exactly why she needed to make an appointment, but first one to do tshuva will always, will always accept. And she said that she started with marijuana in her class and uh, it progressed to cocaine and then it progressed. And now she did other things because that was the group that she was, so to speak, hanging with. And now she feels very bad. It's, it's before Yom Kippur. She wants to know how to get her life back together. It just started from smoking marijuana at somebody's party. Right. Now, now you said that it typically comes from an older individual, somebody from 12th grade can get somebody in ninth grade or something like that. Where's that 12th grader getting it? And I'm talking more on a macro level. Where are we picking this up from? Because if we're getting close to secular uh, percentages, it sounds like, is this an influence from the outside or is this something that's going on from the inside? I think that it began from the outside, but uh, Rabbi, as you know, we are great at imitating, and we even become greater than the people that we've learned from. We just, we know how to perfect it. We're perfectionists. I feel in the beginning, there was the outside factor. But today, the, in, the community is no longer insular like we used to be. We are exposed to the outside. We see the advertisements. We uh, here, the people, uh, the music industry, we see that there is a lot has uh, uh, come in. We've had influence from the uh, general secular music, like it or not. Uh, it's a fact. I think that we have learned very well. And there are people that are always going to be uh, on the outside, on the fringe, that are going to learn from uh, the society in general. And they will bring it in and they will bridge the uh, the gap and bring it into our community. They are, There are people, unfortunately, that they think they're doing a chesed by bringing it in, by introducing somebody to it. I, I, I don't like to say it, but at our own Shabbos table, what's, what's being lauded? What's praised? A bottle. 
Glenlivet, how much does it cost? Rare scotch that I have. And then the young people, well, young teenage, teenage boys, teenage girls, they could have some. In the meantime, where is the cutoff? Who's watching how much somebody, is it the old fashioned bartender that says, you've had enough, now you have to go home? <laughs> Nobody's saying that. And when they see, I don't want to say it, but a parent or someone that is supposed to be setting an example and they have a table full, it can't help but be an influential factor in the person's own mind of how they're going to view it. When I was a bocher, when I was a teenager, so there was a great rebbe that used to have me by his table. The whole liquor was in between the fish and the meat. You would bring out Slivovitz. Everybody would have maybe a half of a schnapps cup of a whiskey glass of it. That was the whole total experience. I didn't care for it that much, and that's all he had. So I never, uh, never got into any trouble on it. But in today's world where they have everything and they have the soda now that you can buy, a soft drink that is by one of the famous vodka makers. So I'm drinking a soft drink. The fact that it has some vodka in it, <laughs> it doesn't matter. The percentage is low. So all the kids want the new item. That vodka that's in the soda, orange and strawberry and all the good flavors, and I can have it. That is what I call introducing at our own Shabbos table all of these things. And people go out and they, uh, they, they do better. They know how to get more and all different kinds. It's, it's certainly a no centam. <laughs> no question. <laughs> it's not bottle the season. So if, if we have parents, and maybe we have to divide up by parents that are uh, indulging themselves and not indulging themselves, but if we have a parent and, and uh, what are some of the signs that they see that they can be aware of in their children to show they're using? And have you had parents come to you and say, we're concerned? And that's where I'm getting to the question. Parents that are using themselves, are they still going to be concerned or are they going to not care because they themselves feel that the alcohol or the marijuana is innocuous? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of parents start to realize it when the young people around their table begin to indulge more than they thought. Maybe the parents were able to reach the the uh, the limit. Maybe they knew how much and how much not to. The young people they they like it. They enjoy it. And uh, you know, it's a free society. A lot of people. Uh, drink and they drink a lot. The parents will come, but usually a little bit later than earlier. If they would have come earlier, I would have told them, don't praise it. Don't make a big deal out of it. Uh, limit the amount of bottles that you have on the table. Maybe have some wine. Maybe liqueur is also okay. You could be Yotze the mitzvah, whatever the mitzvah is. Uh, and sometimes the parents really, they didn't mean for it to take off. I had a mother, she came in and she said, you know, uh, I found in my, I was doing the laundry or something. So I found in my son's drawer when I was putting it back that underneath the laundry, there was a bottle. And I don't know, I think he had a friend's vort uh, the night before and they probably went and they brought the bottle for the vort and then it I said, Mama, if it's hidden beneath all the clothes, it's not from the friend's board. That's not how it works. So she began to understand that her, her uh, son does have a problem. Uh, parents have to be keen to this. 
In our world, they have to be keen to a lot of things. They cannot take the ostrich approach. Kids need direction. They need to have a good talk about alcohol, where it leads to, where drugs lead to, uh, you know, scared straight with they used to show the film and uh, used to tell the uh, kids, this is what happens. This is what happens if you end up in the place you don't want to be. Uh, this is what happens if you drink or take drugs. And they would actually show somebody. I mean, I, I don't want to be too radical <laughs> on the program here, but they would show somebody that was going cold turkey that had uh, mixed, missed their fix and was freezing and violently sick because they had to get off drugs or somebody who was throwing up when they were so uh, inebriated. They were so drunk. They didn't know which oil they were, maybe in Atsilus, and they were throwing up on themselves. It's available for people. Should it be shown? It's a question, but I think at least some very good open talks in the yeshiva, in the Beis Yaakov, and at home. It could only help. Our education prepares us. If people don't have that education and they never see it, and we shield them, then what are they going to learn? They just know taking a, some alcohol, it's interesting. It's what people do today. It's what the uh, advertisement showed. They dress elegantly and then you have a drink in your hands and you, you're just going to make it in life. You're going to be successful. So I, I think that we need to have some uh, more education, some people that will uh, take the bold step to introduce into the curriculum some very interesting ideas about alcohol safety and drug safety and moderation and boundaries. So without that education, what you're saying is they are only seeing the upside out there. They're seeing the publicity and they see the adults and it looks like they're having a good time. They don't understand the downside, the consequences of, of using either drugs or alcohol. So are you, are you familiar with any formal programs that have been instituted in the yeshivas and the Beis Yaakovs, or is this not something that's being addressed right now? There are uh, some who have adopted uh, the Board of Jewish Education uh, years ago, had started some work on it. Uh, there are other uh, curriculums that uh, have been available across the board. I don't feel that uh, we have yet uh, acceptance of it. Uh, there is, you know, there is a hesitancy. People don't want to uh, expose the young people. People don't want to teach them things that they may not need to know. I know that Torah Masora did, uh, you know, uh, exert some effort in this area, which is uh, which is unreal. Uh, there are yeshivas that have brought me in. There have been some Beis Yaakov that have uh, taken the bold step to talk about different addictions uh, in today's world. It is it, it's a quick quick addiction to step in between experimenting and addiction is like a very slippery slope. And sometimes uh, it is quick. I came to a meeting that Ohel, which uh, does phenomenal work uh, in this world. And I was a few minutes late, I walked in and it was about drug, uh, drug education and so forth. And, uh, when I came in the middle of the meeting, so all the educators that were there and the doctors, uh, they said, okay, let's ask him. They said to me, what do you think? Uh, should there be drug education in the schools? So I was caught off guard. I said, if there shouldn't, then I'm not sure what this meeting is all about today. 
Right, right. Because the students, uh, younger people out there know a lot more than we expect them to know. If we're concerned that uh, we don't want to educate them about things, they know much more than we do. Definitely. You know, it's like when the parent sits the child down and begins to hem and haw about one of the subjects and the child says, oh, Tati, I know about this thing altogether. I could, t- I could tell you. They know already. They've been exposed already. They've seen people who are shicker. They've seen people who have drunk at a simcha. They're exposed to it. They probably have seen somebody with a cigarette, with a joint. Everybody, when the vaping came out, which Rabari, uh, it, it was something really, I, I think it was just a step that brought everybody down. The vaping was very attractive to all young people and, and older people as well. There's a little apparatus. It's interesting. They sell all different colors, all different flavors, mint and chocolate and banana. And it became something that you could do inside. It became something, wasn't like a cigarette dangling out of your mouth, a camel cigarette. It wasn't like that. It was much more sophisticated. And um, the advertising was sophisticated. A lot of people got into it. I had somebody recently told me that if he doesn't break the habit, it's going to cost him in his own personal life. Do I know any good ways of getting off of vaping? I tried to help him. I suggested a couple of things, but uh, all of this has been glorified and we need to de-glorify it, if that is a word, um, to take away the so-called uh, glamour of it all and to realize that it just takes a person down, gives a person a very bad addiction hobby that they don't need, will not be beneficial to them at all. Right. Well, Rabbi Goldwasser, I want to thank you so much for you giving us all of your experiences and all your input. Having written extensively on these topics, uh, you're certainly a wonderful address to go to. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be together. And Abari, continue. Be It's an unbelievable service to the entire cloud. Amen. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Rabbi Daniel Feldman. Rabbi Feldman is a Rosh Hashiva at Ritz and a professor at the Saisim School of Business. He is the rabbi of a shul named Or Sadian Tinek, and he serves also on the editorial board of Tradition and has written numerous, numerous books and articles, including one very relevant to our topic today, False Facts and True Rumors, Lush and Hara in Contemporary Culture. Rabbi Feldman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Barry. It's always great to speak to you. You as well, Rabbi Feldman. So I'd like to divide up our conversation initially between drug use, alcohol use, and the like. And then thereafter, there are a number of Lush and Hara shilas that come up. And you wrote the book, so we'll get to that. I think that'll be easier than the first segment. So when it comes to the first part, when it comes to drug use, and we're talking about in high schools, but it need not be. For, at least for this first uh, few questions. And, and and the first one is, is there something halachically wrong? We're going to focus on the halachic side of things. Now, is there something halachically wrong with using drugs? Well, we know that drugs can pose a tremendous danger to one's ability to function at full capacity, to one's ability to make rational decisions, to one's ability to serve God the way they're meant to, and to live life to its fullest, and to live life even in a way that is meaningful for them and is healthy. And to intentionally go down that path, or to think that you can go down that path safely, is often a tragic mistake. And 
and the halacha tells us to take responsibility and ownership for how we can maximize our potential and how we can serve God. And too often we can stumble and find ourselves in situations where we no longer have control and then circumstances are very different. But to the extent that we have the ability to make decisions and to take ownership and to still see things clearly, it seems that the halacha would ask us to take that ownership and to be very careful about what we do that can deprive us of the ability to live the lives we want to live. Now, when it comes to certain of the more, I guess, tamer drugs, the less uh, severe, serious drugs, for example, marijuana is even is even permitted, even legal in certain places. You happen to be in one of the places, New York, New Jersey. So uh, when it comes to that, would that be a problem as well? Or is that some simply uh, something that's leisure? You just like, I'll go to Disneyland and have a nice time where I'll have a uh, have a puff of, an, uh, of a marijuana cigarette. I don't know what they call those. But uh, would, would that be the, the same thing or as, as heavy drug use? Or would that be in a different category? I don't know if anything's really tame. I I think the fact that things are legal has to do more with the difficulty in distinguishing between certain drugs and alcohol use. And once you open a door to one, it becomes harder to close a door to another. But that doesn't make it wise or advisable, certainly from a halachic perspective. And it certainly doesn't make it safe. And when we're trying to live lives with a perspective of Kedusha and with a perspective of having a meaningful existence of Avodah Hashem and all of the different aspects that Ramosha Feinstein discussed in his Shuva when he talked about marijuana and a lot of what he discussed there, many point out some of it's more halachic and some of it's more hashkafic, but it doesn't really matter. It all goes to the question of trying to live lives of Avodah Hashem that are meaningful and that are productive. And I don't know if there's a reason to think that marijuana is any better as far as that's concerned. Of course, there's always a question of degree, but I think that as far as to consider it tame or to consider it innocent or to consider it anything that is anything less than harmful, just because it may be legal in some states, certainly wouldn't want to be driving in the car next to somebody who's under the influence of marijuana. And I wouldn't want to have my own decisions influenced by it. And everything is a matter of degree, but I don't know if that's going to be enough to make a difference. Right. Now, when it comes to alcohol use, would the rationales, reasons, halachic and ashkafic that Rav Moshe brings apply to alcohol as well? And this is a little bit more complicated because we happen to have alcohol, at least wine use, mandated and possibly required on yuntif and uh, the arbacosis and the like. So here it gets a little bit more complicated because we may be in certain instances required and uh, we can't have a black and white line as to mutter and usr. It's true that it is more complicated, but it's also true that when it comes to intoxication, we do have a very clear line. And if that means that we have to take a different attitude towards alcohol, then maybe so be it. And that maybe we do have to be very careful about the image that we're setting and about the picture that we're creating about that kind of use. Because if the only attitude that we can take is that everything has to be permitted because of that, and then certainly means that we have to really revisit the approach that we take towards alcohol and its usage, because there's certainly, especially Bizman Hazet, so many risks and so much harm that can come from that before getting to any kind of drug use. And don't think that the halacha is requiring us to be drunk and perm is a whole different story. We could talk about that perm time. I don't think it's, I don't think it's the case there either, but certainly any other time of the year, Perm, I think, is its own discussion. I don't think one has to, I think one should get drunk on perm either. But certainly any other time of the year, not Pesach, not any time, Shabbos or Simchas Torah, any other time of the year, I don't think there is a value or 
any permission to be getting drunk. And if the only way that we can relate to alcohol is a way that causes us to lose our sense of responsibility or to open the door to other kinds of elements and substances that are destructive and harmful. So then we have to seriously take a new look at how we look at alcohol. Right, right. I I just came to mind, although it's not our main subject, uh, vaping and smoking. Vaping and smoking. So here, I guess it doesn't have the immediate impact of having doing harm. It doesn't make somebody a uh, dangerous driver. The effect of it may actually be to calm somebody down, at least the smoker, maybe to irritate people around the smoker, but the smoke himself, it may be calming to the smoker. And we have a a long-term damage to the body, serious damage to the body. So what are the contemporary post Is there anyone that matiers smoking nowadays of the great Gdolim, or do we have a consensus nowadays that this would be absolutely prohibited. I'm not aware of anyone who's mat or anyone to start smoking nowadays. Uh, I'm not aware of anyone who's cognizant of all of the consequences and all of the impacts and who sees that as something that can be recommended or allowed. Right. Neither neither am I. Okay, wh- why don't we move on to Lashon Hara? And, oh, and- it's always fun to move on to Lashon Hara. <laughs> so who should we talk about? So... so uh... <laughs> So, so this indeed can come up if, if there are students in high school and uh, one is using or many are using and one isn't or the ones that are not. And they know the classmate or the classmates uh, not, not doing something that is mandated by the school. It can be done off of the premises or even on the premises. And the question is, uh, for example, A will say A knows that his classmate B is using drugs. How should A handle such a thing? He knows that uh, B is doing something terrible and he's going on a slippery slope. Can he go in and inform B's parents? Can he inform the teacher? Can he inform the school principal? Are there any limitations on saying or not saying because of Lashonara and what he can say and what can he not say? So here there's a a lot of issues to consider and it has to do with how we view Lashonara and it has to do also with how we view the issues at hand and they go together. So one question is just to understand the behavior and there's a big difference between those who are looking to start dabbling in drugs and those who may already be caught in a web of addiction and may not really be in a position to control their behavior the same way and who may need more of a compassionate attitude and certainly a big difference from those who are looking to deal drugs and to harm others for their own profit and they're not struggling with personal addiction. Each one of those is really in a a different category. And to understand the kind of approach that is necessary regarding each individual. So that's certainly going to be very important in terms of trying to figure out what to do. Now, in terms of the issues of Lashon Hara, so theoretically, there is clearly justification for going to an authority figure in order to address somebody who's engaged in behavior that is harmful for themselves or harmful to others. And that's something which the Torah seems to discuss explicitly in the beginning of Parshas Vayesha, where the Torah tells us that Yosef was involved in bringing reports about his brothers. And it's true that there is somewhat of a debate in the postgame and in the Mephorshim in general as to whether he was justified or not. Uh, Some seem to feel that that was the cause of Yosef's problems, that Yosef was not justified in the reports he was making about his brothers. But others assume that there must have been a justification. After all, his last name was Hatzadik. Presumably what he was doing was uh, coming from a 
justified perspective. There's a whole discussion of the Afikayan, beginning of the second chalik of Sefer, where he explains that the behavior of Yosef is a, a template for Lashon Hara If you look carefully at the Psukim that describe what Yosef was doing, you can learn there the rules for Lashon Hara and whether or not Yosef was the model, so maybe that's subject to a debate, but there does seem to be a concept of Toelis, not just in terms of warning victims, that's the more classical type of toelis, so somebody is subject to harm from somebody else. But there's also the concept of toelis of talking to an authority figure, and that if somebody is going down a dangerous path, to turn to an authority figure in order to prevent that from happening or to stop that, to reverse that, there is a concept of purposeful Lashon Hara that addresses that. But we have to know what is going to be helpful, what kind of behavior they're engaged in, and what kind of authority figure is going to be helpful. And in general, when it comes to Toalas, as the Chafetz Chaim discusses, so usually there's a notion that we try to speak to the individual first. Sometimes that's not going to be effective. That's one of the points the Afikayam discusses in his analysis of Yosef's behavior. Sometimes the authority figure is uniquely capable to get through to the individual. Sometimes it's because they're authoritative, and sometimes it's because they have a love for the person. And I think nowadays it's going to be more about that, finding somebody who has a relationship, who has a love for the person, who has a connection to this individual. Hopefully that's a parent. Hopefully the parent is always somebody in the individual's life who has that kind of relationship and who can make a difference. So when that's the case, so then certainly there's no concern of Lashon Har. It's just a question of making sure that it's done effectively and done properly. And there was an entire literature, a big back and forth, a huge controversy in the 1960s where Moshe Feinstein wrote a tshuva and then wrote another tshuva after getting a lot of pushback that Moshe wrote that he thought it was prohibited for a Rebbe to ask other students to report on a student and that in doing so, he was encouraging that student to engage in Lashon Hara, and he was teaching and training students to be habituated to Lashon Hara. And, and the, the Rebbe was requesting that report cheating, or was it something else? So that's also a question. What kind of behavior are we talking about? Because there was a lot of discussion about it. Many, many objected to this shuva, and they said there's a concept of toelas, and if there's bad behavior going on, so doesn't the Rebbe have to prevent it? And why can't the Rebbe teach the students that that's a part of Hochus Lashon Hara? And then there was a whole second round, because Ramosha wrote another shuva where he doubled down, and he said, how do you know that whatever the bad behavior is, is worse than Lashon Hara? We have to still make sure to not be teaching Lashon Hara and to be teaching the importance of Shmir Salashon. So there's a lot of nuance in this discussion, and there's a lot of elements. So first of all, Reb Moshe was concerned that the motives would be bad, and the role of motive is also a part of what the Chafetz Chaim is concerned about when he talks about Toelas, that we have to make sure that the people who are going to be informing on someone are coming from a good place, and others objected to that whole issue as even being a factor, because if somebody is preventing harm, so maybe we don't have the time or the space to worry about motives. If there's a, a vulnerable victim out there, so how can we let motive be a factor? But the Chafetz Chaim was worried that motive can sometimes cloud the whole decision-making process and that it can have other kinds of ripple effects. So they're both true. So we have to worry about motive, but sometimes we also have to worry more about the results and we can't look so much at motive. So what you see from the Chafetz Chaim's issues and we see from what Rabosha was writing about and what his detractors were talking about that they're all right. Everything they're saying on both sides is correct. And we have to try to factor it all in that we don't want to encourage students to become informers or to look to try to get up on the other students and to knock the other students down by reporting on them or to score points with the teachers by becoming the favorite because they can 
report on all the misgivings and all the misdoings of the other students. But you also want to create a culture where we're looking out for each other. And if somebody is struggling, and especially understanding just how harmful drugs can be, and just how much it can destroy somebody's life. And if a teacher can be helpful, and if a principal can be helpful, and certainly we hope that a parent can be helpful. So to bring a parent in and to bring a teacher in or bring a principal in when they can make a difference, and also recognizing that these behaviors do spread and there is a vulnerability of the entire population. So how can you create a culture where everyone is collaborating to try to protect the vulnerable from being afflicted by these trends, whether the vulnerable are those who have not yet been exposed or those who are addicted and who can't find their way out without help and without compassion and without the assistance of teachers who care and parents who care and principals who care? And how can you create an environment where the right people are being told so that they can take the actions that are necessary in order to give people the tools to protect themselves? So Lemaisa, if if a teacher requests students, if you know anyone that is on drugs, if you know anyone who's cheating, if you know anyone breaking school rules, if you know anyone who has a smartphone against the school rules, I want to know about it. So it's it's subject to machlokas between Rav Moshe and other postgame, but you should look at the facts and circumstances of the situation and you have to see, is this going to really be beneficial to the class and beneficial to the student who is violating and is it going to lead to uh, something positive for him or is it going to be very detrimental and look at the facts and circumstances and make a decision based on all that. Is, is that a correct sentence? Uh, Synopsis? I think so, because it's easy to say because it doesn't come to any clear answer, but all of those are a part of it. You know, cheating has its own considerations because cheating tends to hurt all the other students, tends to hurt future employers. So there are also additional victims when it comes to cheating. That's something, you know, you and I both teach in the business school, and this is an issue that we're very focused on. That that's something that has to be identified, not just we're betraying ourselves when we cheat as a matter of our own fundamental integrity, but it's also something that shouldn't be allowed to be perceived as a victimless crime. Uh, cheating is very much something that victimizes the class, victimizes the whole system, victimizes potential employers. So there, there's an aspect of losamad al-damriyacha. But also in a lot of these situations, uh, there are situations where the person is himself at risk because of the behavior, but we want to put them in a context where they'll get the help that they need. So certainly just to let them spiral downward without anybody helping, that's not going to be the right answer, but to bring in somebody, hopefully the parent's always going to be that person. We hope it's not, hope that the parent is the kind of individual who's going to have the love and care that they should be brought into the situation. And hopefully we have teachers and principals who are also thinking that way and can understand how to direct their attention when we're talking about situations like drugs, where so often there are forces beyond the control of those who have already been ensnared, how to create a network and how to create a system that it's going to help rescue people from these forces. Now, there's an interesting comment that there's a whole secondary literature. Ever since the Chavetz Chaim wrote his Sefer, there's many, many Svarim. It's now uh, definitely well into double digits of Perushim on the Sefer Chavetz Chaim. But, uh, one of the earliest ones, the Sefer called Nesivas Chaim by Ramosha Kaufman. And he discusses there that the idea of toelas, so we often assume, so when we're talking about, let's say, the toelas of an authority figure, that this idea that's 
discussed in the literature that you can turn to an authority figure to address the behavior of somebody, that that's the only kind of toelis that there might be. That if this authority figure can change the behavior, so then it's purposeful, but if not, then it's not purposeful. And he suggests there that it's not necessarily the only kind of toelis, that if you're talking about a parent, if you're talking about a teacher, so the nature of a parental relationship and the nature of a teacher relationship is that they care about the child, they care about the student, and a part of caring about them is knowing what's going on with them, even if they won't necessarily be able to directly change it. So the fact that they're looking to know and to understand the challenges that the student or the child is undergoing, that is itself the toelis. And the one talking to them doesn't have to only consider, well, if they'll be able to change it, I'll tell them. And if not, I won't, because a part of that relationship is to be able to be connected to what's going on with the child and the student and to understand that that itself is a toelis. And he acknowledges there that that could be abused, that uh, a teacher, for example, could be overly nosy and could say, well, I need to know everything, even when it's going beyond any kind of a, a reasonable boundary. But it should just be understood that that's a part of what it means to care and to perhaps have a broader picture and to be able to see what benefit can come from that. And that's also called toilets. Right. So we have a very murky concept of toilets and a post is going to have to be consulted because the facts and circumstances of every situation is going to be different. Think so. All right. Very good. Rabbi Feldman, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a lot to think about and a lot to consider because these are complicated issues. Thank you, as always. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Joining us now is a young lady we're going to call Sarah. She is a recent graduate of high school, Yeshiva High School, and she's going to talk to us about the experiences that she indeed had with uh, friends using. Uh, various substances, and hopefully we'll have some insights as to what it's like to be in high school and how to hopefully avoid the usage. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So it's, it's, it's really nice to have you to really get some insights from somebody who's lived through this uh, fairly recently. I haven't heard what you have to say, but I'm definitely interested in hearing. I'd like to start out with asking, when did you see drug and or alcohol use begin by your classmates? Was it at the end of high school, beginning of high school? And, and did it change over time? I'd say that it started um, the beginning of 10th grade, just little by little, like alcohol, a specific type of alcohol, like with mixed drinks, nothing like so crazy. Um, and then over the course of 10th grade, there would be parties being thrown like in people's houses, either with their parents or without. Some people would like lie, some people wouldn't. And then over time, it just like drastically changed, I guess, like in 11th grade is when it like spiked and they would get they would get alcohol from like either their parents cabinets um, and they would just think that it would be like a cool thing to do. And they like really enjoyed it. So that's kind of where I saw it begin and then spike, I guess, and then just continued throughout high school. It didn't like ever decline. It just kind of rose. Increased and increased through, through yeah. the grade. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. And now you mentioned that they got those substances from their parents' cabinets. Did they get it elsewhere as well? Because that, I would assume, uh, it would empty, unless there were very significant uh, cabinets with a lot of uh, alcohol in it. And parents, I, I guess, may have may or may not have cared that their alcohol is being uh, depleted there. So were, are there other ways that they got alcohol? And and uh, how about drugs? Were, that, were drugs involved as well? Yeah, so they... I would say like just in the beginning um, is when they like, I think took their parents alcohol. Like it wasn't like a significant amount that like the parents would notice. It was maybe like a bottle, like maybe even half a bottle. But 
I think they they got like when they started wanting to get more of it, they ended up getting fake IDs, which is like a, was like a cool thing to do in high school. They got it from like I guess the supplier. It was like I don't really know. And then once they got that fake ID, it would be from like a random state, random anything, not their identity at all. Um, and they would go into a local liquor store um and get a bottle or two and then supply it to the greed and then other kids saw oh this actually works let me get a fake id and then it kind of spread and then now everyone in the greed or not everyone i should say a lot of people in the greed ended up getting fake ids and then it just spread and everyone was able to get alcohol and supply that um drug use i would say started i think in like 12th grade um, in the beginning of 12th grade, it wasn't as common as alcohol, um, maybe like weed, marijuana, that was more popular, um, but definitely not like a drastic amount. It was more alcohol than drugs, um, but weed was definitely like a pen or I'm blanking out on the word, like when you roll it up, um, that was like a little bit more towards 12th grade. Okay, so this is probably the most important uh, question that I have to ask you. And uh, we do have uh, young adults that listen to this. And obviously, one of the, if the not the most significant uh, motivation to a student in high school or younger or older uh, to start having alcohol, continue drinking alcohol and drugs is the peer pressure. Because if the cool kids are doing it or certain groups are doing it, your friends are doing it, it's very difficult to not feel pressure to join in the activity. So how would you say somebody should try to prevent that peer pressure, um, pushing them from being involved? Is, is there a way to stay friendly with the people in the school, uh, your friends and and not be participate? How, how did you handle the situation? So like during 11, 10th and 11th grade, I should say, um, I was kind of like, I was friends with the people that got alcohol and like supplied it and everything honestly like personally for me it like didn't like taste good and like i didn't enjoy it and i didn't enjoy like not staying sober so like i just like kind of like pushed away from that like once i saw like the consequences because it wasn't for me so to say but like i saw my friends doing it and they enjoyed it um but i wouldn't like necessarily push them away because I was scared at first. Like I didn't know like how they would react. Um, and then in 12th grade is when I like saw my like future, so to say, like I was applying to SEMS in college and I wanted to like get my name not in that type of group, be kind of like more of an outsider, but still friends with them because I was in 12th grade. I didn't like want to make necessarily new friends, but also didn't want to have zero friends. So I remember like the specific moment, actually, we were on a Shabbaton and we were on like a school event and they were using like vape pens and drinking because I don't think they want to stay sober on that school event. And I was in that room and I didn't really know how to react because it was a school event. Like it wasn't on our own terms. So I was like kind of in a puzzle. and. It ended up being that I just left the room and didn't say anything to anyone. Like I just left, like I didn't say like, oh, I'm going to go tell people. Like I kind of just kept it to myself a little bit. And then word started spreading. Like the faculty, I guess, found out and they knew that I was in that room with along with like four or five other people. And I, it kind of like tore me like, what do I do? Like, do I tell the faculty details or do I keep it to myself? Because there's always like, two rights and wrong. Like, do I lose friends over this or do I get them punished or like 
So it ended up being that I did tell faculty just for my own sake, because I like, it wasn't like a tattletale, because, but I don't know, I just felt like telling the faculty I was doing the right thing by also like, even if they got consequences and like were annoyed at me, I knew it was just going to push over and that other people would see hopefully in the future that like they shouldn't be doing this on a school event. And so it ended up being like all fine. I'm still friends with the girls. Like they were still best friends, but I would say like a motivation or for other people to that are listening is try not to like put yourself completely in a situation um, if you want to avoid drugs and alcohol, because I feel like once you're fully in, so we're like fully in that friend group or fully in a situation, it's kind of hard to get out rather than like, if you're kind of like in, but out and like, don't like supply it and don't participate. But like, besides for when they're doing that friends with them, I think that's like a good balance. Um, And when they like want to participate in that like if you're uncomfortable saying like oh don't do that i don't think that's the best idea maybe go to like your other friend group or even like pick one of those friends aside that it's like your best friend in the group um and say like just think about like you're applying to sems next week like this might not be the smartest decision or there's a bunch of different reasons why you don't want to be doing what you're doing right now just think about it long term and like if they say like no it's fine like they won't find out or it's fine like this like this is my time to have fun like just keep on like retelling them that this isn't the best idea and that there's other ways to like have fun so that would be my advice not to do that so that, that's right very way. So two points get out of the situation don't put yourself into the situation don't don't be their roommates on a school activity when they may doing uh, be doing these these activities so don't get too close don't put yourself into the situation and remember the ramifications because you may think that people don't find out, but indeed, inevitably, people do find out. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate to have the uh, the firsthand knowledge and information and insights that you've given us. And it's, it's very helpful to hear that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Joining us now is Dr. Debbie Ackerman. Dr. Ackerman has a doctorate in social welfare and is a licensed social worker with many specialties. At the top of the list is substance use and abuse and addiction. Not that this has anything to do with our show, but uh, it's an amazing fact. She is a mother to 11 children and an additional eight stepchildren, making it almost two minyanim. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really like doing this with you. It's truly, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So super. So why why don't we start with uh, the trends that you see regarding substance abuse in from high schools? How have things changed over the past few years? This is basically what you deal with day in, day out, seeing clients who are involved in this area. So have you seen changes recently? Maybe uh, COVID had an impact or maybe not? So I don't know that we have like specific statistics. Uh, for Jewish schools. And I think if somebody even wanted to do that research, I would hope that people would tell the truth. But when we do look at the national trends uh, from the CDC for the Centers for Disease Control, we know that the top substances that teenagers use is alcohol, alcohol, marijuana, and tobacco. 50% of students from ninth grade to 12th grade will have tried marijuana at one point, and 40% of them will have tried cigarettes, which we know. And about more than 50% of them will have tried alcohol. So those seem to be the main drugs that uh, teenagers use. And that I do see. Uh, alcohol is huge and marijuana is huge. If a teenager gets more into the addiction, then they're going to start to seek out and get harder drugs, cocaine, meth, heroin, pills. But the ones that 
start with are marijuana and alcohol, and of course, cigarettes. Those are the the gateway substances. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so well, you consult, uh, have patients across the spectrum, I, I, I believe. Have yep. you seen this use, abuse across the board, modern orthodox, or is it more limited to specific segments? Across the board. Across the board, uh, doesn't discriminate. Strymol, Kipasruga, Breslov, Modern Orthodox, you know, why, whatever it is across the board. The COVID question is interesting, and we really did see and are seeing an impact from COVID, which is addiction really did uh, get really bad during COVID. And we also see a lot of mental health calls in general teenagers suffering from anxiety and depression, much more numbers than we've ever seen. Younger kids. 10 years old, eight years old that are suffering from depression and anxiety. So it had an effect, definitely had an effect. <laughs> and addiction is a, a cross-cultural disease. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or white or purple or Sephardi or Hasidish. We got it. And have you seen things now that COVID is hopefully uh, subsiding a little bit? Have you seen, seen things relax a little bit either on the, the mental health side or the substance use abuse side, or we're still going strong? You know, it was very hard to predict what COVID was going to happen. I mean, I think we all thought we're going to be in a two-week lockdown and then, you know, go back to normal. I don't think anybody anticipated two and a half years of it. Uh, I think that agencies and private practitioners are trying very hard to meet the need. <clears throat> and there's, there's a huge need now. But I don't think we could have prepared any better for it. Uh, liquor stores were considered essential business in COVID. I don't know what went on in Israel, but here in America, a lot of my clients, Stu Leonard's was very happy to deliver cases of whatever you wanted to your doorstep. So it was a bit of a problem. We're still dealing with the problem. And so it hasn't slowed down yet? No. No. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. For good or bad, business is booming. Right. Whether that's fortunate or unfortunate. And so it seems that the biggest risk of substance use abuse is getting addicted. So let, let's put that on the side for now. And please walk us through what's the downside if use, uh, what, what's the downside of use if addiction does not kick in? Okay. So the downside of use of addiction does not kick in is, first of all, even if uh, teenagers are not classically addicted, but they're using alcohol, it's going to be associated with other addictive behaviors like uh, unprotected relationships, uh, with uh, reckless driving, and with things that are dangerous. Because whether you're addicted or not, if you get drunk, you're still going to behave in a way that could be dangerous and reckless. Uh, the second thing is that it really can contribute to health problems throughout your life. Alcohol is really not a pleasant substance. Uh, it's always painted as pleasant, right? The world kind of revolves around alcohol being beautiful. You get a new ship, you pop a bottle of champagne, you go skiing, you sit in front of the fire afterwards and that beautiful brandy. So alcohol is always portrayed in a very, very glamorous and very beautiful way. And it's associated like with money, right? College football and martini lunches and everything that's glamorous and, and really fantastic. But it is really a very bad and dangerous substance. It affects any organ that it touches. And quickly, right? The liver has to break it down into a chemical that's really a carcinogen. And then what the liver can't absorb goes to the brain, which produces the high. And your body really has to work incredibly hard to metabolize even one drink. So it's 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 not a good substance. So, so the, this, the second point here is now about health and the health risks. You know, oftentimes when people talk about tobacco, cigarettes, they say it's, it's, it's bad for your health. You get it. Unfortunately, some people still ignore that, but, but you get it. You know, you're killing yourself. Does substance rise to that level of harmful to your health or is it simply? 
No, 100%. Alcohol is linked with a lot of chronic illnesses and not just illnesses that have to do with the liver. I mean, I'm not a medical doctor, but I have seen uh, people that with alcoholism and even without, their their cognitive function is impaired. Things do happen on that drug. And I think that the one of the biggest problems is not that things happen, but really kind of like what you said, when you looked at the old movies, also cigarettes were so beautiful and so glamorous, those cigarette holders, you know, you're holding it, you're flicking it, and it's killing us. Alcohol is the same thing. It, I think it's the public conception that alcohol is okay, which is just about as bad as the consumption of the alcohol, because we're not we're not, as they say, we're not really hopping the matzov, or we're not really getting it. It's a very, it's poison. Right. Sorry. Would you say the same thing nowadays as marijuana? Because that also is now something that's deemed. Uh, First a- of all, a hundred percent. Number one, like, you know, uh, not that I could relate to this because I'm only 35, but, you know, there was that saying that if you uh, remember the 60s, you didn't really participate in it, right, in terms of the drugs. But they know now that uh, the ingredient in marijuana, the THC, which is a chemical that causes the high, is so much more today in marijuana than it was back then, right? The, the levels of THC are much higher. That's number one. Number two, a lot of it is laced with stuff that you don't know. Uh, I have seen more than one young person who smokes marijuana who actually started to have psychotic features. And sometimes they'll come back from that and sometimes they won't. And that's dangerous. And then the third thing is you're putting smoke and carcinogens into your lung. That's no better or worse than anything that you put into your lung, even vaping, if you're putting something artificial into your lungs, that's just not healthy. Right, right. right. So, so let, let's move over to addiction, which is, I guess, the, the highest risk of of use of alcohol and marijuana, whatever the substance may be that leads on to the progression of addiction. So define for us, I guess, clinically and practically, what does addiction mean and how does it happen? Okay. So- the pure definition of addiction, and I'm taking this from NIDA, which is the National Institute of uh, Drug Abuse. Addiction is a chronic, pervasive disease that's characterized by relapse and recovery, and it's a compulsive behavior which continues despite harmful consequences, and it has long-lasting changes to the brain. It's considered both a complex brain disorder and a mental illness. So that's your classic definition. And I would like to point out that it is a chronic pervasive disease marked by relapse and recovery and compulsive use despite negative consequences. It doesn't say it's a sin. It doesn't say it's a moral failing. It doesn't say it's an ethical violation or breach. It doesn't say anything like that. And I think that's very important. When people don't really understand what addiction is, the words they use to describe people with addiction are never complimentary. Never alcoholic, a druggie, a stoner, a cokehead, a meth head. And even in our community, uh, they're a shicker. It's not exactly what you want to be known as within our community. So the basic it's, model, it's, a mental, it's a mental disease, in other words, yes. when somebody correct. comes addicted. And, and yes. just to put that in plain English, tell me if this is correct. It's a compulsive behavior, meaning you're going to keep on doing it despite correct. knowing it's bad for you. Correct. Even if you're hurting yourself, you can't control yourself correct. and you just keep on doing it. Correct. Because it, it addiction uh, messes with or in, acts with the reward system in the brain and it makes it go haywire. And in my opinion, and it's, it's way too complicated to get into in, in the time that we have, but in my opinion, addiction is the perfect combination of nature and nurture that a person can definitely have the propensity towards it. There are studies that show you that there is a genetic component. However, trauma and having an adverse childhood experience will put you straight on the trajectory 
to addiction. Uh, for example, we know that certain childhood traumas will give you a more than 90% chance of becoming addicted to one or more things as an adult. It doesn't mean that all people that have addiction have had trauma, but all people who have had trauma have a more than 90% chance ending up addicted to one or, or something else. And basically your, your brain gets flooded with these chemicals, right? Uh, you want that high. And once you start to give the brain those chemicals, something very interesting happens. The brain stops working as hard. And it kind of says, why should I produce this when Ari, Rabbi Wasserman will give it to me? So it kind of starts to knock at you like that craving and you give it to the brain again, but then you build a tolerance and then you need more in order to get that feeling. And it just progresses and progresses. Back in 1935, there was a man named Dr. Silkworth, and he had a, a kind of rehab in New York City. I think it was called Townsend Hospital, where people that had a lot of money would go and kind of dry out uh, after months of, of drinking alcohol. And they'd dry out, and then they'd go back out, and then they'd come back in. This is 1935. And in 1935, uh, Dr. Silkworth said that people with alcoholism are allergic to alcohol, that their bodies cannot metabolize it or handle it in the way other people's brains and bodies can. And that's what we know today. We know today that whatever that substance or behavior that triggers your brain, it's kind of like a, a switch. It gets flipped up. And once it's flipped up, it's extremely difficult to shut it back down. And we've had this information for 88 years. Not that I'm a great math mind, but my mother was born in 1935 and I better know how old she is where there's going to be trouble. <laughs> that's a compulsive behavior. It's a compulsive behavior, but it, it's also rooted in the fact that you trigger the brain. The brain wants that response. Right, that's and what this, creates. Yeah. That's what creates the compulsive yeah. behavior. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, is that is that only addicts that uh, they, when they use they have a higher threshold and want more? Or is that other people as well? So, people, like I said, can have the propensity to addiction. They can have the compulsive uh, disorder piece of it, and then the addiction can work within that. They didn't really know if they were going to put addiction in a separate category in the last December, they're going to put it under obsessive compulsive disorders, because it is an obsessive thought that leads to a compulsive behavior despite negative consequences, because it doesn't make any sense rationally. Rationally, addiction makes no sense. Why are you going to do this when you know you're going to get in trouble, when you know that if you get stopped, you're going to have a DUI or worse? Why in the world would you do this to yourself? makes no sense. Why would you lay in bed all day and smoke marijuana or uh, watch things on the internet that you shouldn't and not go to work and not have a relationship with your family? Because it is that perfect combination. And there are a lot of people who are trying to make mental symptoms go away. And there are a lot of people, a lot of people who are trying to make the pain of trauma go away. Right. And using the uh, using the substances to do that. So if, if that's the case, then that is the case. And uh, that's interesting to try to think about classifying it as OCD, because I guess it's the same basis. It's obsessive and it's a, it's a disorder based on something you're out of control of. So right. why would it's like a manifestation, right? It's a manifestation. It's manifestation, the same, right? right? The thought goes and goes and goes and goes, and then you compulsively do the behavior to soothe that thought. But th then the chemicals kick in and your body is going to make less and crave more. So you're you're constantly fighting it. Right. So it's, it, it, we would call it a mental disorder then. So why yep. would be such a stigmatized issue in our community. And maybe that's for all mental health. Maybe it's no different, or maybe right. it's, it's viewed as worse. So what's the perception out there and what should be the perception? 
So I love this. This is a, something I thought about a lot and I put in my dissertation. So I think that if you uh, took our community, and I think this is maybe one of my frustrating points. I love the community very much. We are a community that is uh, incredibly steeped in chesed. We really are. And everybody knows it. Uh, people who aren't within the community marvel that if our cars break down in the middle of the night, you know, we have people that we can call that'll be there in 15 minutes and, you know, with cake and coffee and fix your car. And you can gamach everything from a drill to a wedding dress. I mean, we really are an incredible, we are, we are the, an incredibly chesed oriented community. We will give you food. We'll put your wedding together. We'll take care of you after you have a baby. We are an unbelievably chesed oriented community. It's the most beautiful thing. I think if you look at our religion and you want to say it like on one foot, right? And in my opinion, aside from the Kamocha piece, I think it would be that we are a religion that wants to take anything gashmias in our life and elevate it to the form of ruchmias. Everything we do in this world, and I have this discussion all the time with my spirituality class, I, I teach it at Wurzweiler, Yeshiva University. Every single thing we do in this physical world is supposed to be elevated into a ruchnius way. You get up in the morning, you wash your hands, you put your shoes on a certain way, you say certain brachos in certain orders, you, you give tzedakah, anything that you're... Is there another religion? I don't want to do TMI here, but is there another religion that has a blessing for going to the bathroom? I mean, I don't know if there is. I haven't heard of it, but that's how aware we are. That's how aware we are of taking that physical being that you are and elevating into the spiritual. So if you don't really understand addiction, then having the disease of addiction really makes a person look like a Baltiva. They're fat, they're drunk, they smell of smoke or marijuana, they can't control their compulsion for sex or for pornography. I mean, that's a really bad one in our community. And so I think the prevailing thought is you're a Baltiva, you're like, stop, you're a chazer, like go to base medrash, go daven more, go, go say more to Hillam, like let's go. And so that notion of powerlessness, that a person with a disease of addiction is truly powerless over that behavior or substance is kind of like a dissonance in our community because mm -hmm. we believe in choice, right? Everybody has Bechira. And so you are simply just choosing, you are making the wrong choice in your life. And that comes with a lot of judgment. Right. So I mean, certainly, amount of judgment. certainly there is some Bechira involved. Somebody started using and, and not getting on a program, but it's certainly not. Uh, I don't think I agree with that. I, I, don't, I really don't. I don't think people use uh, with the notion of I want to become addicted. I just don't believe that people use and the majority of people start their addictive behavior in their adolescence or teenage years. I have yet to meet an adolescent who thinks anything that they do at 15 or 14 will affect them when they're 40 or 50. That, that it's just not the way they think. And they, nobody starts out and says, I'm going to use and I want to become addicted to, to heroin or coke or anything. You use, there's a lot of pressure in the community. There's a lot of pressure with, with teenagers or you used to shut down that pain, right. to shut down the pain of the trauma that you are experiencing or have experienced. Right. And, and really, about, quite frankly, the, right? and, and the Bechira of getting into a, a, a program for, for uh, an alcohol, a, a program. The biggest, yeah. The biggest symptom of addiction is the denial of the problem. Mm -hmm. It completely resets, re-circumvents, whatever the word is, the channels in your brain. People that have the disease of addiction minimize, they deny it, they will lie, they will manipulate. It's incredible what the changes do to the person's brain. And honestly, I really love working with people who have addiction and their family members. And when you see somebody who has had this really bad disease, who they are powerless, and those are the first couple of steps in the 12-step program, and then they get into recovery, just the most sweetest, edel, 
creative, fabulous people emerge from this disease process. So I, I don't believe that. I think once you give people education and they understand, maybe they have more of a choice, but still if the disease has taken hold of their brain, and I just read you the definition, a chronic disease marked by periods of relapse and recovery. Mm-hmm. So you have to put that in very heavily into the equation. All right. So, so what, what would you say the community should do, do to, to deal with these issues? Are there the things we can do, the chathila, education, upfront, or are we simply going to be playing defense after the fact? First, we should have a big dinner to honor all the people who are in recovery, like one of these big splashy events that we have here right in the United States with a caterer and a band and everybody pays a lot of money. And we talk about this person who is a recovering person of the year. Okay, that's kind of a joke. We haven't had that kind of dinner. Uh, we need one. <laughs> so that would honestly make a very big difference so that we begin to understand this is not a disease of judge of, of where we need to judge people. But so that's a big piece. A really huge piece is the shame and the stigma that still surrounds this disease, period. And the second thing is education, simply like what we're doing here today, which is why I'm really grateful to you to understand that alcohol is not just a beautiful thing that, you know, you have beautiful swizzle sticks for, to understand that marijuana is okay. It's not just a joint. To understand that cigarettes are incredibly dangerous and we should not be giving them to anybody. And the more people you talk to and the more people you try to educate, it really is my hope that the more communities will start to respond. How do they respond? Maybe you don't have alcohol at a kiddish. Maybe you stop having a kiddish club because we all know, and this comes from the Torah also, children are going to do what they see. Whatever you model for your child is what they're going to do. And if you're going to model a kiddish club, incredibly copious amounts of wonderful liquor, they're going to follow. Even if you tell them, no, don't do that. So it's going to take a cognitive shift. It's going to take a shift of, we don't get drunk on Simchas Torah. We don't get drunk on Purim. We find our simcha in more spiritual ways and more ways that are better for us in every single way. It's a lot of work, but I'm up for the challenge. It's a lot of work. It's a process and it's time. Yeah. Uh, oh, it is so time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Ackerman, for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. I love coming on the show and I do hope to be able to come back. Thank you so much, Reverend Wasserman. All the best. Be well.